When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, Jared Halverson here, ready for another week of scripture study here on Unshaken. We passed another milestone this past week, and I have you to thank for it. Most of you watch the, these videos on YouTube. Uh, some of you watch it on Facebook as your missionaries out serving around the world and don't have access to, to YouTube. But uh, fairly late in the game, I, was kept, I kept getting requests from people that didn't want to use up all of their, their data uh, streaming YouTube on a commute that they couldn't watch anyway. And just wanted, is there any way you can make an audio-only podcast version of this? And so I did, uh, and have done really nothing to make it uh, really a polished podcast. It's just separate the video from the audio from these, from these YouTube videos and, and post the audio. And sorry if there's a, a, a diagram or some visual aid that makes no sense when you're listening to it. But I've been amazed by the interest in, in just that. And so we hit our half a millionth download uh, on the podcast, uh, Unshaken Saints version. Your comments and reviews on, on that have been so kind, and I appreciate that. In fact, many of you have asked, how can we be more supportive? How can we help with Unshaken? It's blessed us. We want it to bless others. And honestly, that can be as simple as clicking the like button uh, or the thumbs up or the share or leaving a comment or review. It's interesting because from what I understand, I'm no expert in, all, in any of this, but from what I understand from YouTube and, and podcast platforms and so on, that the more traffic there is on it, then the more traffic they'll end up being on it. Now, those companies are just trying to generate traffic on their websites, which I don't care so much about. I'm trying to generate faith and testimony and hope in people. But if those companies see that there's, there's traffic on that site, if they see that uh, a particular video or podcast episode is appealing to people to the point that they're interacting with it by leaving a like or a comment or a review, then they think, oh, well, if it, if it appeals to this segment of the population, maybe it'll appeal to more. And so we'll push it out a little bit more uh, proactively. So if these lessons are a blessing to you and you think they might be a blessing to others, please uh, feel free to, to click and like and subscribe or whatever it might be. Uh, the, again, the more that you interact with, it, with things, the more visible it would become to others who might benefit from it as well. Now for this week, we'll be studying section 49 and 50, two fascinating revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 49 often feels, uh, to many, less applicable, kind of almost irrelevant, because it deals with the Shaker religion, which has, has almost become extinct. And yet, I'm hoping today we'll see some powerful relevance in a revelation intended for them. And then section 50 definitely applies to each of us, as it speaks of a lot of Latter-day Saints that are struggling to understand truth versus error, especially as new members to the church, trying to wrap their brains about all this new doctrine that they, that they believe in, even though they don't fully understand yet. And that idea of discerning light and darkness, truth and error, is an important one for each of us. Now, I've learned over the years that sometimes it's really helpful if you're studying a, a revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants or a chapter in the Book of Mormon or the Bible, if you can find, well, I call it a mental hook, that you can start hanging all kinds of verses or principles or ideas upon. As hopefully you've come to understand through these lessons, there is so much packed into every single revelation. Too much to ever remember. 
But if you can, if you can find a mental hook, one or two or maybe three, that a lot of different ideas and principles and verses can hang upon, then you've kind of uh, systematized. Instead of having a closet full of coats that you just stuffed on, on the floor, which we have one of, sadly, uh, you have a couple of hooks and you can start to hang things upon it. It's much more organized closet space, or in this case, mental space, as we're trying to wrap our heads around these revelations. I've found that the ideal mental hook is an actual verse from the text that you're studying. In other words, if you can study a chapter and then see, is there a single verse that seems to convey the idea of almost the whole thing? You might need more than one. But I, I found that really helpful for my students because then they have a mental hook to hang things on. And for myself, as I try to remember what is in you know, these revelations or in these chapters of Scripture. Now, if I had to pick a single verse to act as our mental hook for section 49 and 50, it would come in the middle of section 50 when you get to verse 24. It's a powerful verse. We'll see it in context when we get there, okay, later on in today's lesson. But jump ahead and see this as what kind of the focal point of all that we'll be talking about for this week's material. Here the Lord says, that which is of God is light. And he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Now, it seems that light must be one of the Lord's favorite metaphors. He is the light of the world. He gives sight to the blind, which allows them to recognize the light that is all around them. His birth was marked with light in a time of darkness, right? Among the Nephites, day, night, and day with no darkness at all. The time of his death was marked by an absence of light since the light of the world was gone. So the metaphor itself is a powerful one. But in this verse, the focus seems to be upon the potential for that light to grow. If we will receive whatever portion he offers us and then continue in it, then we receive more and more light. It grows brighter and brighter until the perfect day, not a shadow of darkness to be found. It reminds me of my favorite passage from the Kirtland Temple Dedicatory Prayer, section 109, about growing up in God. You see, it's not so much a, a light switch where it's just on or off, but more of a dimmer switch that it grows. And as we grow up in God, we begin to see things more clearly. The light grows brighter and brighter. If you're one of those brave souls that gets up early enough to see sunrise, see, I prefer sunsets. They're a little bit easier to, to, to view. But a sunrise is such a beautiful analogy for this brighter and brighter. The, the, the dawn, you actually start to see some of that illumination even before you recognize the sun itself. On my mission in Puerto Rico, I spent a lot of time on my mission on the West Coast, and I loved the sunsets. I'd never seen sun quite like that, the sunsets and the clouds, and just to watch the sun dip down beyond the horizon into the Caribbean Sea was breathtaking. But I never served on the East Coast, so I never got to see sunrises like that. Well, I did have one overnight trade-off on the far eastern tip of Puerto Rico, so I told the missionaries I was staying with. Are you with me? I really want to see the sun come up out of the ocean. So can we wake up before the crack of dawn tomorrow and go down to the coast and, and watch that? And they were like, eh, it's a little earlier than usual, but eh, sure, we'll do it for you. Thank you, elders. And so to see the sun rise like that and to watch the day grow brighter and brighter was, was a powerful experience for me. Well, that's the kind of experience the, the Lord is hoping for each of us to have. And as we study section 49 and 50, keep that mental hook handy 
so that as you look at principles and, and doctrines and verses of Scripture, hang it on there every chance that you get. There'll be a lot hanging. Don't worry, it's a strong hook, okay? But it's an important one for us to understand because really that's our, that's our discipleship as well. That's our journey to, to receive light, whatever portion the Lord is willing to give to us, to continue in it. This is receiving grace for grace and progressing from grace to grace, which we'll learn more about in section 93. This is our, our daily discipleship. In fact, it remind, the whole concept reminds me of an experience I had with a student a couple of years ago. Amazing young man. I didn't know him very well yet, but he, he introduced himself with an email with a six-page single-spaced attachment full of his questions and concerns and doubts about the church as he was intending to leave. But he said, I, you, you keep saying that you meet with students that are struggling in their faith, and I am big time. Uh, and so if you're willing to answer any of these questions, I'm, I'm game. And I responded, sounds great. Can we get together? What, what page do you want to start on? We can go ver paragraph by paragraph or even line by line if need be. And he was like, really? You're willing to go there with me? I said, of course. Now, I wish I had time to do this for every student or person or viewer out there that might be struggling. But for him, I, was at a, I had a, a, an assignment at that time that allowed me some extra flexibility and time. And so I said, yeah, let's, let's meet as often as we need to. And so it ended up being about a weekly visit that he'd come to me, uh, sit down at the institute in my office, and we would just talk about, like I said, line by line. What's, what's the question here? Well, let's dig into it. And what I loved about this young man, he was a sincere seeker of truth. He wanted to know. He was also a very critical thinker, very smart, intelligent young man, to the point that it wasn't just, oh, kind of roll over and pretend that I believe. If he had a question and I try to provide some clarification and some understanding, and many times he'd be like, oh, that makes total sense, and we're ready to move on to the next. But others, it's like, ah, that still isn't mentally satisfying, or I don't, I don't think I totally agree with that. And I'm like, well, great. Uh, let's, let's keep digging into it. Let's pick up where we left off next week, and we'll start right there. And so we did. And may, I can't remember exactly how long, but maybe four, five, six months that we met. And it was amazing to watch both of us wrestle with these issues and try to make sense of them with the help of the Holy Ghost. Well, it was amazing to watch him receive light and continue in God. And his perspective, his understanding, his spiritual sight grew clearer and clearer as the light grew brighter and brighter. Neither one of us has reached the perfect day yet. But we know that that's the eventual destination, and we're committed to getting there. After that, again, four, five, six months experience together, he said, you know, I don't think we need to meet anymore because I'm in a good place spiritually. I'm ready to dive headfirst back into church and thrive there, which had been his goal all along. Not just to sit through and kind of hold on uh, to his social conversion and muddle through a lack of spiritual conversion, but I, I'm ready. In fact, if our relationship began with a six-page email full of doubts and questions, it ended, well, not our relationship. I still love this young man. Uh, but our, our weekly meetings, that ended with another email, this time with a 35-page attachment uh, of, his, of his journey, of his explanations of some of the things we talked about. Essentially, it was a matter of if someone like me came to me, this is how I would respond to the questions that I had. And 35 pages worth that I read, I just thought, wow, this, is an, this, is, this student is even more impressive than I thought. He really paid attention. Uh, and the kinds of things that we, again, that we grappled with and wrestled with, it was all a matter of growing up in God. 
of receiving light and continuing in God and watching the light grow within us both. That's what I'm hoping will happen for us today. So go back with me to section 49 and let's first put this in historical context. Now when you think of shakers, you probably think of furniture, okay? And admittedly, they deserve a good reputation for that. Uh, shakerism has kind of become a piece of Americana, uh, a piece of our history and, and our culture, but we don't typically associate it with a religious faith. But in the late 18th century and early 19th century, here in, in, in this time period, it was definitely in the public eye. Uh, Shakerism had grown very quickly when it first transplanted from uh, England to the United States. And because it was generating so much interest, it was also generating a lot of opposition. Those two seemed to go hand in hand. In fact, when I was at Divinity School, one of my assignments was to work in the library. I, I was supposed to be kind of keep my, my, my finger on the pulse of all the students and faculty in the historical studies department to know what kinds of books should the library be stocking its shelves with. And so they gave me a, a budget for that department and said, I want you to keep in, in line with all of the, the interests, the research interests out there, and make sure that the library is purchasing things that will help our faculty and students, which was a thrill for me. Let's just say that the, the library holdings that had to do with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints grew considerably uh, during my time there, along with everybody else's research interests as well. But to me, one of, my, one of my favorite memories was, I mean, I'd, I'd be scouring all these book lists and, and sites of academic journals and so on, and, and here's, here's all the new books that are being published, and I'd sift through them all and see, well, which ones would be helpful for our collections and, and which ones maybe not. And one of my favorite purchases was a massive three-volume set of anti-shaker literature. Now that speaks to my interests in anti-religious rhetoric and trying to make sense of how did people attack the Shaker faith yeah, compared to how they at attacked the Latter-day Saint faith or the Catholics or the Jews or whomever else it might be. There was a lot of opposition then because there was a lot of interest. Now I think there's maybe one living Shaker left, a sweet little old lady up in Maine if I remember correctly. And so, as you could probably expect, there's not a lot of anti-Shakerism out there anymore. There's still plenty of anti-Mormonism out there, which should tell you something about the strength of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the interesting, or some of the interesting things about Shakers, uh, they were, that's not their official name, just like people branded us the Mormons, or even the Mormonites, uh, in the early days of the Church uh, as a term of derision, they did the same thing to the Shakers. They're officially known as the Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing. A beautiful name for a church. Focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ. More on that in a moment. But they were dismissively branded shakers because some of the kind of the ecstatic uh, worship practices, the, the dancing that they would do when under the, the influence of the Holy Ghost. We'll actually talk more about some ecstatic worship practices when we get to section 50. But they believed in, in some things that were very similar to what the saints believed in, other things very, very different. For example, with their, with their official name, their focus was on the second coming, but they believed it had already occurred, namely in the coming of their religious founder, a woman named Anne Lee. Now to me, this is where it gets fascinating. You see, they believed that their founder, Anne Lee, was the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now it's not that Anne Lee was Jesus in female form. We sometimes oversimplify things to that. More accurately, it was, if you picture, again, if you're Trinitarian particularly, and you believe in a God without body parts and passions, there is this, this spirit, this essence of deity that exists that inhabited the body of the mortal Jesus of Nazareth. 
And that was the first coming of that spirit of God to the earth in male form. I mean, we believe in body and spirit coming together, right? Well, they believe the spirit of God into the mortal body of uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And so there's the first coming. Well, yeah, to kind of even things out, if, you, if that spirit, that ungendered spirit of, of divinity, inhabited a male tabernacle the first time, well, balance things out and inhabit a female tabernacle the second time. And so that divine spirit inhabited Anli, and that is what they refer to as the second coming, the second appearing. So don't just dismiss this out of hand. They're onto something in terms of recognizing the importance of both the male and the female in the things of God, right? Genesis chapter one, the creation, male and female created he them after God's own image. There are hints and traces of, of what is called the feminine divine in the Old Testament. Uh, you see, it's, it's amazing to me. And so when we, as Latter-day Saints, sing with Eliza R. Snow, Oh my father, and we know that truth is reason and truth eternal tells me I've a mother there. We have such a beautiful understanding of the feminine divine. I wish we knew more. Believe me, that's one of my, my favorite things to hold out for with that third part of the ninth article of faith. Many great and important things yet to be revealed. Well, more a greater understanding of our mother in heaven. I'm, I'm first in line. I want to understand that. So again, rather than just dismiss this doctrine of the Shakers out of hand, recognize that they're, they're trying to understand this, they're proving the contraries between male and female, if you want to put it that way. Trying to understand both the masculine and feminine divine. They're onto something, okay? Now there's a few other things that they that believed in that had elements of truth as well as, as mingled with some error. For example, they believed in, in communitarianism. I remember speaking at an academic conference where I was, you know, during grad school, where I was trying to compare the canonization of the Doctrine and Covenants with what seemed to be a canonization of a certain Shaker scripture, whose coming forth paralleled a lot of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. Really interesting that these two books seem to be on the same trajectory. And then LDS scripture still resonates with LDS communities around the world to this day. And that Shaker scripture that seemed destined for the same kind of canonization just kind of fell short of it. And so I, we, we had the, there was this conference and I was able to present this research there. And it was at a Shaker community in rural Kentucky. It was a meeting of the Communal Studies Association. And, it was, and Shakerism is a perfect embodiment of communal living. Often it would be under one big roof. Uh, and, and one of the other things we'll learn about Shakerism is there were a strong belief in celibacy. And so often you'd have the, kind of these mirror images. I remember the, the Shaker community that we had this conference at. It was in this historic building where the Shakers all lived in the 19th century. And they had two... It was like mirror image with two staircases, one for the men and one for the women. And the two genders were very separate. Celibacy will do that to you. Uh, although they, the, both genders came together in amazing ways, both in their ecstatic worship practices as well as in their communitarian living. So when you get a sense of the law of consecration and the saints moving into Kirtland to, to try to live this way, the Shakers, in many ways, were already a couple of steps ahead as far as that communitarian living was concerned. Now, in section 49, when we meet Lehman Copley, who's one of our main, our main characters today, he lives just outside Kirtland. And, in fact, a little further outside Kirtland is a little community called North Union. And Union, giving that sense of unity, it's a Shaker village where all of these Shakers have come together to live a communitarian lifestyle. 
and Copley was, I mean, interesting. He want, he's, he's kind of a part, but not totally into it. He's, he, he loves a lot of Shaker doctrines, associates himself with this group, but still lives, I don't know, 35 miles away from them. So not ready to, to fully commit. Uh, he is a family man, and so he's, he's not totally sure about living a celibate lifestyle. But even when the saints are moving in, it's Copley's Shaker past that has prepared him for a consecration present. And he's the one that says, hey, if the Colesville Saints are moving in from New York, let them live on my farm. I'm willing to consecrate my property so that these incoming saints have a place to live. And I have to think that he was prepared to live that higher law because of what he'd learned through his association with the Shakers. Now, there's a few more details that this revelation will, will bring out. Uh, the Shakers, for the most part, uh, were not meat eaters, for example. They forbade pork specifically, but many of them didn't eat meat at all. Like I said, celibacy was a huge part of it. And they didn't believe in the need for baptism or other kinds of works. There were a lot of kind of perfectionist communities going on. The Oneida community was one. Shakerism leaned in that direction. And since Mother Anne had already come, the second appearing had taken place. We're kind of living in this millennial realm. At least we are. I don't know about you, you outsiders outside of our communitarian villages. So the need for things like ordinances and covenants, it's kind of beside the point. Those works are no longer necessary. Well, section 49 of the Doctrine and Covenants is going to address all of those things. Because Lehman Copley, now as a, as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, well, a member of the Church of Christ, the name hasn't changed yet, is loving what he's learning in the restored gospel and thinks, man, my, my, shaker, old, my old shaker friends would love this as well. We should teach the gospel with that to them. It reminds me of the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan that is so convinced of Jesus' divinity that she comes running back into town and spreads the news to everybody. Well, that's exactly what Lehman Copley wants to do. Actually, it's what all of us should want to do as well. Once we've found the truth, once the light has grown brighter and brighter in our eyes, isn't it natural to want everyone else that, that used to see as we did to now see as we now do? Well, that's the case for Lehman Copley. Now, the irony here is that Lehman still was holding on to some of those Shaker beliefs, right? It's, it, there's so much truth in them, and he's still holding on to them, as, as we often do. Whether we're converts to the church and we're holding on to some of our old religious beliefs, or whether it's some ideological uh, trappings that we're still holding on to, the philosophies of men, worldly isms, whatever they might be. Well, Joseph recognizes in, in Lehman an honest heart, a sincere desire, but also, ah, he hasn't fully weaned himself off of darkness as this light is growing brighter and brighter. And in many ways, we don't even have to brand it darkness. It can just be dimness compared to this flood of light that the restoration is trying to bring to the world. So Joseph turns to the Lord, asks for direction, and receives this revelation, now known as section 49. Now, we're going to see this in a moment. Uh, the, the missionaries here, it's Sidney Rigdon, Parley P. Pratt, and Lehman Copley, are called to go and share the gospel with this group at North Union, just outside of Kirtland. Now, there had already been some association between the two, some trade going back and forth. Like I said, Shaker Furniture is good stuff. Uh, and, and so there'd already been some relationships developed, but they were more social and economic than they were religious. And so this is really the first chance to, well, we're going to share the gospel with them. And even before we read the Revelation, I'll, I'll give you the end from the beginning. These three missionaries go, 
Interesting to see the, the, the trio here. You have Sidney Rigdon, who had been a minister for all these years and, and well-seasoned in preaching the gospel and so on. You get a Parley P. Pratt, another recent convert who is all zeal, much younger than Sidney Rigdon, just raring to go. Parley had an amazing personality. And then you get Lehman Copley, that is kind of this bridge figure between past and present, between Shakerism and the Restoration to the point that he even needs to cross his own bridge a little bit more because he's still, oh, kind of, am I a man serving two masters, right? Or, or caught between these two worlds of thought. And what's interesting is as they go, and the leader of the Shaker community was very open, uh, was willing to let them come and even preach to his congregation. Oh, you say you have a message from Jesus Christ? We're open to that. If God could speak through Mother Anne, and if he could speak through us, why can't he speak through you as well? Very open, which I, I respect uh, immensely. Well, Sidney Rigdon read the whole revelation. I'm not sure if it was wise for him to start in verse 1, which seems to be more directed to the missionaries themselves. It's like, do we, do we read all the instruction, the introductory material, or do we read the revelation itself? Uh, we'll, we'll get to this, but it seems that the message meant for them was supposed to start in verse 12. And that might have been a better place for Sydney to start, because it didn't go over very well. We'll see in a moment some of the things that were the, the instructions to the missionaries that may not have been intended for the Shakers' ears. But however it went down, the Shakers were not willing to accept the message that, that the missionaries had given them. And Sydney was okay with that. Uh, the Shaker leader had been kind enough to let us preach. We tried. We shared the revelation that God had given us for them. And they didn't accept it. So let's, let's remain friends. Let's agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable. And we'll go back to Kirtland and, and maintain the friendship and, and relationships that we had before. And I'm sure that was still a possibility. So often as we share the gospel with friends, even if they don't accept it, we can maintain friendships. But that wasn't enough for fiery Parley P. Brett. Uh, after, the, after Sydney read the revelation and uh, the minister said, I don't believe in that. And the, and the missionaries were like, well, what about your congregation? And the congregation said, yeah, sorry, we don't believe in it either. So again, Sydney was willing to accept that and stay for dinner and then go back to, uh, home to Kirtland. But Parley P. Pratt stood up and like, basically show, shook his coattails to the, uh, before them and said, I am free from, from the... It's like sh shaking the dust off your feet, as is described in the New Testament, which the Shakers knew about too. And they were so offended by this. This easygoing, pretty even keel Shaker leader was so disgusted by this that he had some strong language for Parley P. Pratt and basically cast him out of the community. He, he partly ran back to Kirtland kind of with tail between his legs. Well, Sidney decided, well, if it's okay if I stay for dinner, I'd, I'd love to eat before, <laughs> before my journey. And he did. He, he was fine. And then kind of Lehman's in between the two, like, ah, this did not go the way I thought. Almost an abish kind of a moment where it's so excited. This is my chance to, to share the gospel with my former friends. And it did not go according to plan. In fact, Lehman was so troubled by the whole experience. Remember, he's kind of caught in between the two congregations anyway, not believing some of this, but still believing some of the old and, and needing to, to understand which is full doctrine and, and true. And he's so kind of, I don't know, traumatized by the experience that he ultimately decides, forget the Latter-day Saints, I actually want to lean back towards my old Shaker community. And when he comes back to Kirtland, eventually he tells the Colesville Saints that were settling upon his land, forget law of consecration. Uh, you're not welcome here anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to consecrate my farm to a church that I'm not really a member of anymore. And so a sad aftermath for, for Brother Copley, who, again, as we see, wasn't willing to fully commit to the restored Church of Jesus Christ, 
but also wasn't fully willing to commit to the Shakers either, even after his so so-called reconversion. It still wasn't. I'm going to move in with the rest of the community and in North Union. I'm still not going to abandon my family and go live a celibate lifestyle. I don't know if Lehman Copley had a little bit of James Covell in him or not, but there he was, kind of caught in between the two. Now, with all that background, as we now dive into section 49, I do think it's worth pondering in our own situation, how do I share the gospel with others? And in fact, how do I view other churches? I hope our discussion back in section 10 softened our views of the apostasy, that it's not so much a a bright light and, and pitch black darkness out there, but rather degrees of glory, if we want to call it that or degrees of understanding, degrees of light, as the Lord is trying to turn up up the dimmer switch, uh, to go brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. The Shakers did have light. How do we respond to that? And how do other people respond to the light that we are trying to extend to them? I actually had a really good friend in high school who was a a solid, born-again evangelical Christian. Wonderful friend. In fact, it's interesting to watch our lives have kind of gone down parallel paths as I've become a a teacher of religion in my faith and he's become a teacher of religion in his. He's a theology professor at at Fuller Theological Seminary. I went on my mission to Puerto Rico. He went on a mission to Spain. A wonderful young man. And, And it was interesting that usually it happened in English class on a Monday. And this friend would come to me and say, hey, Jared, this is what we talked about, about your faith yesterday. And I'm just curious how much of this is actually accurate. See, there was a lot of anti-Mormonism then too. And so I was just uh, grateful that he would be willing to come to an actual Latter-day Saint. He knew a lot of us uh, and be able to say, this is what I'm hearing about you. I'd, I'd love your, can you confirm or deny these things? I think that was my first real familiarity with anti-Mormon literature as I'd look at some of these things and go, oh, no, no, that, I can see where they're getting that. But no, that verse is taken out of context or, oh, no, that's not exactly how it happened. Or, well, that's recreative. I've never even heard that before. And like I said, I was grateful for his willingness to, to understand. He, he wanted to understand us and other faiths. Now, to me, it's interesting because I've seen a lot of that of, you know, I'd be driving through the South, for example, when we lived in, in Nashville. And sometimes you'd see these, you know, marquees outside of churches about what their uh, Sunday school is going to be about that week or things. And there'd be times, this was during the Mitt Romney campaign, so every, everyone's wondering about Mormonism. And it's like, we're going to be talking about Mormonism, so come and listen. And I was always curious exactly what kind of take they would have. And honestly, I have some that say, oh, we heard about you guys. My, my pastor told me about the Mormons. And there'll be times I just think, you know, I'm sorry that we can't return the favor because we never talk about you. I mean, in a way, I'm, I'm flattered that we would be so uh, on the radar that you'd, you'd feel the need to talk about us in your congregation. Because I've never been to a Sunday school class where we systematically go through some other religion and tear it apart. Yes, we do teach the generality of the apostasy because of of its need for the restoration. But we don't have a week on the Methodists and a week on the Baptists and a week on the Presbyterians and a week on the Shakers. This is actually one of the closest things you'll ever see to that kind of an attempt to refute the doctrine of another religion. But the approach the Lord takes is really fascinating to me. Because honestly, if you were to read just the Revelation and not the section heading, yes, there's a hint that it's to the Shakers. You'll see that at the end of verse 1. But it doesn't go through and say, and this is where they're wrong, and this is where they're wrong, and this is where they're wrong. 
especially when you get to the actual part that they're supposed to teach the shakers, starting in verse 12. Instead, rather than a negative, let's pick apart their doctrine, it's a positive, here's our doctrine. These are the truths that we believe in. Now, yes, there, a lot of them are going to be in conflict with shaker belief. Yes, we're communitarians, but not quite in your way. Yes, we believe the importance of morality and chastity, but not to the point of celibacy. Yes, we believe in taking care of the, the, the mortal body, but not to the point that we think that, that meat eating is sinful. And yes, we believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ, but not in the belief that it's already happened in the coming of Mother Anne Lee. But the approach the Lord takes, particularly from verse 12 to the end, is not a, and you're wrong here, it's simply, this is what we believe. And then you can take what you believe and compare the two and decide what you want to do with it. I actually prefer Sidney Rigdon's approach. Here's the doctrine, take it or leave it. Joseph Smith was actually that way. Teach correct principles and let them govern themselves. Or, or present the gospel. If you remember Joseph Smith history, that's his verb. I came to present, not to prove, not to promote, just to put you in possession of the facts and then let you decide for yourself. That's what allows us to maintain relationships after a successful or even an unsuccessful attempt to share the gospel. It reminds me of something Wilford Woodruff said. He said, when you go into a neighborhood to preach the gospel, never attempt to tear down a man's house, so to speak, before you build him a better one. Never, in fact, attack anyone's religion wherever you go. Be willing to let every man enjoy his own religion. It is his right to do that. If he does not accept your testimony with regard to the gospel of Christ, that is his affair and not yours. Do not spend your time in pulling down other sects or parties. We haven't time to do that. It is never right to do that. I love how confident President Woodruff is in the, in the restoration, but also how, how, I don't even know the right word, tolerant, there's the right word, how tolerant he is of other people's belief and how okay he is in their acceptance, obviously, but also in their rejection of the fullness of the gospel that we're giving them. Isn't, doesn't that describe how Jesus Christ acted? Even Jesus was rejected more often than he was accepted. And he was the light of the world. Remember how many times he's introduced himself in that way. I'm the light, but the darkness comprehended it not. And so what does Jesus do? He just keeps tilling soil. He keeps calling sheep. He keeps shining light. And hoping people's eyes will eventually adjust to it and recognize the truth that's before them. I've heard of other church leaders use a, that similar analogy to what Wilfred Woodruff did, to don't tear down their house, just build the house of the restored gospel across the street, invite them in on an open house, and then let them choose. In fact, Joseph F. Smith, who was a very fiery young man himself and a very passionate missionary, by the end of his life, he had mellowed to the point of, of greater religious tolerance for other views. And when one of his sons was serving a mission, he wrote him a letter with this advice. Kindness will beget friendship and favor, but anger or passion will drive away sympathy. Sound like Alma's counsel to Shiblon? Bridle all your passions so that you can be filled with love for those that you're teaching? President Smith went on, to win one's respect and confidence, approach him mildly, kindly, no friendship was ever gained by an attack upon principle or upon man, but by calm reason and the lowly spirit of truth. 
we'll see both of those elements in section 50, calm reason and the spirit of truth. If you have built for a man a better house than his own, sound like Wilfred Woodruff's thought, and if he is willing to accept yours and forsake his, then and not till then should you proceed to tear down the old structure. Rotten though it may be, and that's a little strong too, uh, it will require some time for it to lose all its charm and fond memories of its former occupant. Therefore, let him, not you, proceed to tear it away. Kindness and courtesy are the primal elements of gentility. I love that. I, I hope you don't think that I'm trying to reduce the zeal of any missionary efforts on our part. But I am trying to increase the love and understanding, the patience and tolerance. Be, be bold, but not overbearing. Be diligent and temperate in all things. Bridle your passion so you can be filled with love. Teach truth. You don't have to tear down error. People will see the difference and they'll be left to decide. Sidney seemed to understand that a little bit better than Parley P. Pratt did in this moment. Even though, again, in my opinion, I do think Sidney started to read the Revelation a little earlier than, than the Lord intended. I think he should have started in verse 12. Well, if he started in verse 1, let's see what he started with and see how the Shakers might have felt as he's reading this to them. Hearken unto my word, my servants Sidney and Parley and Leman. For behold, verily I say unto you, that I give unto you a commandment that you shall go and preach my gospel, which ye have received, even as ye have received it unto the Shakers. There we see that word hearken, that so many revelations begin with. We see Sidney and Parley and Leman referred to as my servants. The Lord is willing to own them, to claim them, because to this point, all three are claiming him. Leman is the one that eventually will choose not to. It's my gospel that the Lord is asking them to preach. These beautiful possessive pronouns here. But I also love that at the end, I need you to preach it even as ye have received it. Now remember back in section 5 when uh, Martin Harris is struggling with his own testimony. I want to know for sure. And he was all head and not enough heart. Remember this? And so he's, he's doing all these tests and, and trying to, to prove to himself so that he can then prove to others that Joseph really has the gold plates and the Book of Mormon really is God's word. And the Lord cautions him repeatedly in that revelation. That's not how you're supposed to gain a revelation, Martin. And then he explains how he is to receive a revelation. But then by the end of section 5, he's so crystal clear. Now, when you go out to bear testimony of these things, do not be the kind of missionary to others that you wanted for yourself. I need you to teach them in the way that I'm teaching you, pure testimony. Allow the Spirit to work on them. Don't aim solely for their head. Yes, include the head, but include the heart by all means. The Spirit of God is what will change them. We'll see that more in section 50. But again, here to the Shakers, you need to, you need to give them a chance to receive the gospel in the same way that you did which was a spiritual experience. So don't try to, to beat or bludgeon them into submission and accepting your testimony. Don't try to, to prove them wrong or Bible bash them into belief. Think about it, Lehman. How did you gain a testimony? Parley, you were there. Sydney, you were there too. 
Because as Parley and the others are going through the Kirtland area on their Lamanite mission to Missouri, they leave a copy, copies of the Book of Mormon. They bear their testimony and then essentially let people decide for themselves. I mean, so much of their, their real conversion is taking place in the absence of the missionaries. I mean, yes, some are baptized before they leave, but even Sidney and Edward Partridge, for example, are going up to meet Joseph Smith in New York. There's a lot of still investigation going on, even in the absence of the missionaries that first presented the gospel to them. And that's a good thing to have happen. Let people wrestle with these things. Let them pray and study and come to an understanding of truth from the Spirit of God. Lehman, that's what's happening. That's what happened to you. Sydney, Parley, all of you. Let the Spirit work upon the Shakers as well. Teach them truth and then honor their agency and let them decide for themselves. It's conversion, not compulsion, that I'm after. Now in verse 2, those Shakers are described a little bit more. And this is the part that perhaps wasn't so wise to, to read out loud to them. But they're told, Behold, I say unto you that they, the Shakers, desire to know the truth. So far, so good. But then this phrase, in part. They desire to know the truth in part, but not all, for they are not right before me and must needs repent. Now that's strong language. Now, no stronger than what the Lord is saying to the saints. The saints themselves have need to repent as well. We'll see that in, in plenty of revelations coming up. That is essentially the message of missionaries, after all. Cry nothing but repentance unto this people. So I don't think the Lord's being harsh here. But I wonder, again, is that something you say to the, to the investigators themselves? Or is that for us to know that they're good, they have honest hearts, they're desirous to know the truth? But, again, if we think about brighter and brighter unto the perfect day, they are content with their level of illumination. And that's often the case religiously. I'm willing to accept light to this point and no further. Uh, the, the audience in Jesus' day. No, we'll, we'll accept Abraham and Moses, but not, not Peter, James, and John. We'll accept Hebrew Bible, but not New Testament. You'll see that in so many of the people in Joseph Smith's day. No, we're, we're good with Protestantism. We're good with the religion that we have, and I don't need any more. And sadly, we see that among Latter-day Saints to this day. I do desire to know the truth, but only that part that I'm already comfortable with. Are we open to change? Are we ready for ongoing revelation? Do we welcome prophetic guidance until we receive it in full? Or do we want to know it in part, but not all? There's a certain sense here of what we might call plausible deniability. I only want to have this much light so that I am justified for stumbling around in certain areas of darkness that I prefer to, to hold on to. I'm okay with my lower levels of light because I prefer my lower levels of accountability. This is like Amulek. I knew, but I would not know. Or my wife, when I asked her to start praying about our relationship, and she said, I don't want to pray. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you want to pray about this? She said, because I have a feeling God's going to say no. And I kind of like you. Uh, but as soon as I know that the answer is no, then we have to break up and, and we need to move on. I'm like, okay. I wasn't sure how to take that. I was like, huh, she wants to keep dating. That's good. She doesn't think it's going to result in marriage. That's not good. Uh, but there is this that she, she desired to know in part, but not all. 
I liked my chances, and so I, I wanted her to know all. I wanted to know all myself. Well, it worked out great. But this idea of only wanting to know in part, again, keep that on the same hook that we're trying to play so much of today's material, that brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. It reminds me of a, of a dad trying to save money on, on utilities during the winter. And they put a sign at the thermostat, only to this point, do not turn the heat up past this temperature. Well, we seem to do that sometimes with the Lord as far as how much light is the light of the world willing to shed on things. Well, verse 3, he continues, Wherefore, because of this, because they're, they're holding on to a certain degree of light, but not anymore, wherefore I send you, my servant Sidney and Parley, and Lehman is included here too, we'll see him in verse 4, to preach the gospel unto them. Now, Lehman is, is, is separated out in verse 4 from Sidney and Parley in 3 because he's got some, some more stuff to work on. Verse 4, My servant Lehman shall be ordained unto this work, that he may reason with them. Now, that's an interesting insight. He's got some shaker background, has some connections there, so perhaps he can reason with them in ways that Sidney and Parley simply can't. I loved having companions or going on trade-offs with missionaries or members that were converts to the church because I, I was born on, in the covenant. And so talking with an investigator, I couldn't fully empathize with just this change from one religion to another. And when they said, no, I, I would, you know, nasci catolico, morire catolico, I was born Catholic, I'll die Catholic. And to have a former Catholic as a companion or a member there, like, oh, I was Catholic too. And I learned this, and I learned that, and I was so grateful for my upbringing and the understanding that Catholicism brought to me. And then I learned these other things that just filled in blanks and, and helped me understand things that I was always confused about. I just thought, man, your testimony. You can reason with them in ways that I just can't. So, Lehman, no wonder you need to be ordained to this, called on this mission. You'll be great. But also, this caution that you may reason with them, but notice this, not according to that which he has received of them, but according to that which shall be taught him by you, my servants. And by so doing, I will bless him. Otherwise, he shall not prosper. Now, this is really uh, sage advice for Lehman specifically, because he is kind of caught betwixt and between. He's not fully committed to either congregation. Perhaps he's a little like Martin Harris and wants a little bit more proof. Or perhaps he's just struggling to make the full conversion and transition from one faith to the other. Which I get. That, that, that's understandable. So there's this fine line that Lehman's being asked to walk in verse 4. On the one hand, reason with them. Use your understanding, your experience, and your reason. But don't do it just in the way that you have received of them. Do it in the way that you receive from God. We'll see that also in section 50. I love that these two revelations are side by side and in the same lesson for this week. How are we preaching the gospel? How are they meant to receive the gospel? Is it going to be in their way or God's way? So as missionaries today, we're not going to bash with the Bible bashers. We're not going to proof text with the proof texters. We're not going to solely rationalize with the rationalists. There has to be space carved out, the lion's share, in fact, for the power of God 
and the Spirit of the Lord. That is Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That whole chapter is a masterpiece for someone who's just as intelligent as his Corinthian audience. And Corinth is is a stone's throw away from Athens if you zoom out far enough on the map. Uh, but under Athenian influence, under philosophy, Greeks, I mean, this is the home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. And what's Paul saying? That I determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. That I'm not coming to you with, with flowery words of man's wisdom because I don't want your faith to stand in the wisdom of man. It's got to stand in the power of God. So that's how I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you with faith and with testimony. I'm coming to you with the Spirit of God in hopes that you will receive through that same Spirit. Lehman, yes, reason with them. Draw upon your experience and your, your empathy and your understanding. But do it in God's way and not just in their way. Remember those possessive pronouns back in verse 1. It's my gospel after all. And if you are my servants, you'll share it in my way. And that is always through my spirit. Now keep going in verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, For I am God, and have sent mine only begotten Son into the world for the redemption of the world, and have decreed that he that receiveth him shall be saved, and he that receiveth him not shall be damned. You servants of mine, your mission is essential. It's the reason I sent mine only begotten Son. And now the reason I'm sending my servants to follow in his footsteps. Salvation and damnation are hanging in the balance here. That's true for the shakers you're about to teach. It's true for you missionaries that are about to go serve. Verse 6, they have done unto the Son of Man even as they listed, as they chose. And he has taken his power on the right hand of his glory, and now reigneth in the heavens and will reign till he descends on the earth to put all enemies under his feet, which time is nigh at hand. He goes on in 7, I the Lord have spoken it, but the hour and the day no man knoweth, neither the angels in heaven, nor shall they know until he comes. Now you see at the end of 6 and throughout 7 this hint about the second coming, which yes is going to be important for a shaker community that believes it's already happened. The rest of the world has missed it. But again, this is still part of the content of this revelation that is addressed to the missionaries, not yet addressed to the Shakers themselves. We'll, we'll get there. We'll talk more about the Second Coming specifically for them later on in this revelation. I think instead what's happening here is putting the time period in context for the missionaries. The Lord isn't yet correcting false doctrine. He's trying to tell the missionaries, you've got to share the gospel. I think too often we think, well, now's just not the right time. And while that sometimes might be true, and we don't want to jump the gun or become overbearing or too passionate to the point of, of zeal overcoming kindness, right? Uh, we need to be, be, have that gentility that Joseph S. Smith talked about. Don't tear down their house so fast, okay? Build, build the one across the street for crying out loud. But don't take forever because the coming of the Son of Man is nigh. No one knows the day nor the hour. So take advantage of the time that you have. If we ta we've talked about this previously, that the Lord gives us the signs of the times to get us going, but also doesn't tell us the due date because he doesn't want us to procrastinate the day of our repentance. Well, if procrastinating the day of our repentance is a concern for the Lord, procrastinating the day of our sharing of the gospel is a concern for him as well. So Lehman and Sydney and Parley, you need to go share the gospel with the Shaker Village right now. 
you and me, as we think of non-member friends and family who may be outside of the church, yes, think, pray for an understanding of the Lord's timing, but recognize that you don't have forever, that we need to, to take advantage of the time that we have and help people prepare for the second coming by knowing about it. We know enough about it to know that we should feel a sense of urgency here. Also, I think he's hinting at, at the beginning of verse 6, that even the Son of Man, this only begotten Son that the Father sent for the redemption of the world, as described in verse 5, in verse 6, was rejected more often than he was accepted. This is the same Lord who keeps saying in the Doctrine and Covenants, I am the light and the darkness comprehendeth it not. I wonder if he's preparing for the, these missionaries for a less than successful mission among the Shakers. They will do to you as they decide. They did the same to Jesus Christ. And Jesus honored that agency and didn't give up on them and provided means for their continual growth in light as soon as their eyes are willing to adjust. Do the same. Why? Because everybody needs the chance to change. That's what he gets back to in verse 8. Wherefore, I will that all men shall repent, for all are under sin, except those which I have reserved unto myself, holy men that ye know not of. Now I'm fascinated by the end of that verse. At the beginning it's, hey, everybody needs to repent. The Shakers do, the Latter-day Saints do, everybody else does as well. And the timing is, is now, so don't procrastinate. But what's interesting is uh, in that the thought of all of us being under sin. Well, there are a few that, that aren't. Holy men that ye know not of. Now, if this were part of the, the text that was meant for the Shakers, it might be telling the Shakers, hey, we got some holy men over here that you're not aware of. And yeah, that might be true. Maybe he's referring to, to the three Nephites and to John the Beloved and so on. Those are truly holy men that are reserved unto God. And the Shakers don't know anything about that. But since this seems to be part of the, the text meant for the missionaries, I wonder who else the Lord might be referring to. Now, again, could it include those translated beings, holy men reserved unto God? Yes. Could that be other Latter-day Saints that are doing better than those three recognize? Sure. But could it also include those outside the church who are living according to the light that they've been given? and are eagerly awaiting an increase of that light as it grows brighter and brighter unto the perfect day? Are there holy men and women outside of our ecclesiastical embrace? Remember back to section 46, visitors welcome. Why? Because they have spiritual gifts that we don't. Are there holy people living according to the light that they have better than we who may have greater light but are falling short of living into it. Oh, please leave plenty of room for holy envy as you see the holiness in people that you know not of as far as LDS church membership is concerned. Don't worry, God has a plan for everybody as, it, they, as they grow brighter and brighter too. If they'll, they have received God, if they will continue in God, that light will increase for them, just like it increases for us. Now going on, verse 9, Wherefore I say unto you, that I have sent unto you mine everlasting covenant, even that which was from the beginning. So you do have something to share. That's why I'm sending you out to share it. Verse 10, That which I have promised, I have so fulfilled. 
and the nations of the earth shall bow to it. And if not of themselves, they shall come down, for that which is now exalted of itself shall be laid low of power. There is evidence that God plays the long game. That he's okay with people accepting or rejecting. Christ himself was used to that from his mortal ministry. So thank heaven that his covenant is everlasting. Uh, both premortally and mortally and postmortally, as, as they get chances in the spirit world to continue to understand the things of truth. Ultimately, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Christ. Ten hints at that. The nations of the earth will eventually bow to the truth. And if not of themselves, they'll be brought down. Remember President Benson's words. God will have a humble people. We can either choose to be humble or we will be compelled to be humble. So that great passage in Alma chapter 5. Have you been stripped of pride? And to me it's always like, no, no, don't strip me of it. I'm trying to take it off. Just be patient, okay? I'm trying to remove my pride. Uh, if I don't do it quickly enough, if I procrastinate the day of my repentance, then yes, eventually my, I'll be pantsed of my pride. I, it will be stripped of me. I will be brought low by circumstance rather than choosing to come down out of choice. It's back to that idea of the, the rotten structure that Joseph F. Smith told his son about. Don't tear it down. Let someone else do that when they recognize that there is a better building across the street. That's what we're trying to accomplish here. Build the better building. Make sure that the visitor's welcome sign is, is obviously attached and let people decide for themselves. Ultimately, the shaking of the earth, and this is something that the book of Hebrews teaches, ultimately the shaking will reduce anything not God-built to rubble. You don't have to go and push over their structure, but help them decide to come over by helping them see the power and, and good construction of the house of God across the street. Now, verse 11 we get closer to shifting the audience here. Wherefore, so again, great conjunction. Wherefore, because of everything I've said up to this point, I give unto you a commandment that ye go among this people and say unto them, like unto mine apostle of old, whose name was Peter, colon, and now here's your message. So this is where I, why I think that, that Sydney really was meant to start with verse 12. This is the message I want you to share with them. It's just like the message Peter gave at the day of Pentecost, where there in Acts chapter 2, all these assembled Jews together. Again, there's, they've lived according to light. Uh, Peter needs to teach them additional light, and we'll see if they accept it. You don't have to tear apart Judaism. Just present Christianity and let them choose. And when it got to the point where the Jews themselves were the ones asking Peter, men and brethren, what shall we do? Our hearts have been pricked. We know that what you've just taught us about Jesus is true. We recognize our part in rejecting him. So is it too late for us? What can we do? And what does Peter say to them? Repent and be baptized and your sins will be forgiven you. Even those ones you committed against Christ made in ignorance. Well, same message here. Verse 12, what's the message to the shakers? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus, who was on the earth and is to come, the beginning and the end. There is faith, the first principle of the gospel, followed by verse 13, the second and third. Repent 
and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, according to the holy commandment, for the remission of sins. And then verse 14, the fourth and final step in the fourth article of faith, and whoso doeth this shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of the hands of the elders of the church. Now this is a positive approach. He's taught the fourth article of faith. Have faith in Christ, repent of your sins, be baptized for the remission of sins, and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. Now, if we didn't know that he was teaching shakers, we'd just think, well, of course, that's the, the, the positive approach to the gospel we're always supposed to teach. That's what it all boils down to. Now, to a shaker audience, they're going to think, wait a minute, we don't believe in the need for baptism. And we all have access to divine light. We don't need the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. They're going to recognize that, wait a minute, what you're teaching doesn't completely fit with my beliefs. And of course, those differences are going to become obvious as we share the gospel with other people. But do you see the approach is more positive than the negative, and this is where you're wrong, and let me explain that to you. It's simply, here is what we believe. And the person is left to consider, huh, that's not exactly what I believe. What do I do with these differences? Do I hold on to my beliefs and reject theirs? Or do I, do I oh, carve out space? They seem to be allowing for that, space for my beliefs. But here's their beliefs, and I'm, I'm left to choose. And will I accept theirs? Well, if so, then I'm going to dismantle some of my pre previously held belief. But I'm the one that's going to do it. They, the missionaries don't have to. In fact, it's not just that they don't have to, it's that they shouldn't, if we go back to President Woodruff and President Smith. So there, verse 12, 13, 14, is the first Shaker doctrine that is, oh, being countered, but not so directly that it becomes offensive. Now here's the next one. This is going to be, again, obviously directed at a certain Shaker belief, but it's being presented as a standalone principle. Take it or leave it. Accept it or reject it. Verse 15, again, verily I say unto you, that whoso forbiddeth to marry is not ordained of God, for marriage is ordained of God unto man. Wherefore, verse 16, he continues to explain this doctrine, it is lawful that he should have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So both marriage and sexuality here, the two twain shall be one flesh. And all this marriage and sexuality, that the earth might answer the end of its creation. Which was, verse 17, that it might be filled with the measure of man according to his creation before the world was made. So verse 15, 16, and 17 is the next Shaker doctrine, that of celibacy. We're all going to live in a, in a communitarian environment. We're going to share everything with each other, but we're not going to share any of ourselves sexually with one another. Now, this is one of the reasons that Shakerism, as popular as it was in the late 18th and early 19th century, began to fizzle. Uh, I mean, there is no uh, internal increase of the community. The survival uh, and growth of Shakerism was dependent 100% on conversion, since there were not Shaker moms and dads raising Shaker children. Well, in a way, they were raising Shaker children if, if converts brought their families in with them. But then it was separation, and we'll raise the children as a community. Uh, but there's no more procreation of baby Shakers. Maybe that's the best way to say it. You can convert someone into Shakerism. You don't procreate someone into Shakerism. And so the doctrine here that's being described, they're going to understand that like, whoa, that's not how we practice things. 
but I do love and prefer the positive approach of simply teaching the doctrine. Marriage is ordained of God unto man. And the way he describes that marriage, verse 16, now some might look at verse 16 and go, wait a minute, you, you polygamous Latter-day Saints aren't believing your own doctrine. Well, we are, but we're understanding that there is a rule and that there is an exception. And only God, who gives the rule, can give the exception. We'll see that in uh, Jacob chapter 2, where Jacob is chastising the, the Nephites of his day for beginning to practice some form of plural marriage in, in a, a self-serving kind of trying to rationalize and justify based on biblical precedent. And Jacob is crystal clear with them, going, no, no, no. The rule is monogamy. If God will raise up seed unto him, he says, then he will command his people otherwise. So he recognizes that there is an exception in exceptional circumstances. And Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, they lived under exceptional circumstances. And eventually in the early history of the church, Joseph and Brigham and, and John Taylor and others will live according to exceptional circumstances as well. And God will give them the exception. But even Joseph Smith taught, I always explained to the saints that monogamy was the rule and that polygamy was the exception to it. I am the first to say hallelujah for living in a time period of the rule, rather than the exception. I am grateful that I can stand behind verse 16 and not worry a moment about more than one wife. But, but please understand that the, when we set, get to section 132 at the end of the year and we talk about plural marriage, that that is an exception. This is the rule. It is lawful that man should have one wife. And then put marriage in the context of sexuality, of procreation. And that also helps explain why marriage between man and woman, one man and one woman, really is God's norm. Because as God looks at marriage, yes, he sees husband and wife as, as critical components here. But where does he really say root the foundation of the family? It's about the children. It's about filling the earth with the measure of man according to his creation before the world was made. As far as I can tell, that's the first hint of premortality we see in the Doctrine and Covenants. It will become much more clear when Joseph Smith translates the book of Abraham. And we see in Abraham chapter 3 a much clearer explanation of premortality. I mean, there's hints of it in Jeremiah chapter 1. There's even a fascinating hint of it when the apostles ask about the man born blind and ask Jesus, whose fault is this? I mean, somebody must have done something really wrong since bad things only happen to bad people. That's false doctrine, by the way. But they ask, who made the mistake for him to be born blind? Was it his sin or was it his parents? Well, wait a minute. How could it have been his sin if he was born blind? Wait, like premortal sin? I mean, to me, there's a hint of premortality, at least understanding among the apostles. And so here, similarly, it's according to God's creation before the world was made. Well, wait, what kind of creation are you talking about if it precedes the creation of the world? Oh, you mean the creation of these spirit children? Ah, filled with the measure of man according to the spiritual creation of those children of men before the world itself was made. Why is marriage ordained of God? because of the environment that it provides for a rising generation that will need parents that are proving contraries between male and female to
together becoming of one flesh to bring those children into the world that ideally then raises those children within the family with both male and female influences. That is the ideal situation that the Lord is ordaining so that the earth can fill the measure of its creation, so that each of us can fill the measure of ours. Now, are there exceptional circumstances where a husband and wife are not able to have children of their own? Or an older couple of widow and widower, for example, or just divorced couples that eventually remarry uh, beyond the age of child-rearing? Is there room for a, a childless marriage? Of course there is. But we're not going to change the rule by making the exception into a new rule. Rather, the rule itself, it is lawful that one man shall have one wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Now again, that's going to be a tough one for the Shakers to swallow. And this group decided not to swallow it at all. Uh, Sydney was okay with that. Parley was not. Lehman was caught in between. But again, from the Lord's approach, just teach correct principles. And then let people govern themselves. I honor their agency. Let them live according to the light they have. If they'll receive it and continue in God, I will turn up the intensity. There will be greater illumination yet to come. Verse 18 through 21 is then the next shaker doctrine that is being positively countered rather than negatively dismantled. Verse 18, Whoso forbiddeth to abstain from meats, that man should not eat the same, is not ordained of God. Now the language there is really tricky. Right? So wait, wait. You, if you forbid to abstain from meat, how does that work? I mean, it becomes clear at the end of the verse what he's getting at. If you're commanding people that you must not eat meat, well, that, that uh, dogmatism is not ordained of God. So perhaps a better way of making sense of the first phrase is not forbiddeth to abstain, but rather biddeth. If you're bidding someone to abstain from meat, and if you're establishing that as, as a positive commandment, you're not allowed to eat meat. Well, that is a dogmatism that goes beyond what the Lord has established. Now, I don't think he's saying that if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, then you're breaking God's commandment. He's not saying you have to eat meat. He's warning rather on the opposite. If you want to eat meat or not eat meat, that's totally fine. I'll honor your agency there. But please honor one another's agency there too. I'm not forcing you to eat meat, but please don't force others not to eat meat. Because that's part of the measure of their creation as well. That's what he describes in verse 19. For behold, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and that which cometh of the earth is ordained for the use of man, for food and for raiment, and that he might have an abundance. But, verse 20 begins, and so here we have, there's a limit to this, but it is not given that one man should possess that which is above another, wherefore the world lieth in sin, and, verse 21, Woe be unto man that sheddeth blood, or that wasteth flesh, and hath no need. So now do we start to see where God is trying to get us into the Goldilocks zone? Uh, on the one extreme, uh, forcing uh, vegetarianism on someone is not ordained of God. On the other hand, wasting flesh unnecessarily or doing this, again, 20 and 21 are interesting to me because it's this sense of 21 is a little more obvious. Don't waste it if there's no need. 
If you're trying to kill animals for mere blood sport, with no thought of what will become of, of the meat or the hide or anything else, then we have a problem there. And also verse 20, that's the more interesting of the two in my opinion, this idea of getting above another, because that's really where the world lieth in sin. I think in some ways this is a nod to Shaker communitarianism and to Latter-day Saint consecration, that your attempts to try to become equal of one heart and one mind and dwelling together in righteousness without any poor among you. The Shakers were doing a great job of that. The Latter-day Saints were trying to do a great job of that themselves. That's a good thing. Without it, the world lieth in sin. But it is interesting to think about the natural resources of the earth, as described in verse 19, which include beasts of the field and fowls of the air, but also anything that cometh of the earth, not just for food, but also for raiment. And I think we could expand that. There's a lot of other uses of natural resources beyond food and raiment. And yes, abundance is okay, verse 19. The Lord made the earth and made it rich, we saw in section 38, and we'll see later in, in economic sections and revelations that will come later. But, verse 20, but not for inequality's sake. This is like what we talked about in section 38, the, the proving of contraries economically between capitalism and communitarianism where the capitalistic side is the ambition and moving ahead and, and the seeking abundance and God placing it there for us to gain, but not for our own individual sake, but for our collective communitarian sake. It's an amazing balancing act that the Lord is trying to help the saints to develop. Then in verse 22, he begins another, perhaps the most important of the, the, the shaker corrections. Again, not knocking down their house, but building the true house across the street and then letting people decide where they'll live. Verse 22, and again, verily I say unto you, that the Son of Man cometh not in the form of a woman. Now that, that's an obvious reference to Mother Anne Lee, which the Shakers will all understand. He then softens it a little bit, neither of a man traveling on the earth. In other words, this is not some kind of a mundane, somebody comes in and says, here I am, I'm the second coming, I'm the embodiment of Jesus Christ. Whether it's Anne Lee or anybody else, because there's other, remember one of the signs of the times, there will be false Christs and false messiahs. There will be those who come, again, with some man traveling on the earth? No, it, it's, this is not a mundane appearance. That was the first coming of Jesus, a babe in a manger, okay? Uh, an itinerant, a wandering carpenter turned rabbi. This is not the second coming. The second coming, this is no mere mortal man traveling upon the earth. This is a, a divine display. The Son of Man descending from heaven for the world to know. Wherefore, verse 23, be not deceived, but continue in steadfastness, looking forth for the heavens to be shaken and the earth to tremble and to reel to and fro as a drunken man, and for the valleys to be exalted and for the mountains to be made low and for the rough places to become smooth. And all this when the angel shall sound his trumpet. That's a powerful description of the signs of the times focusing on the shaking of things. How well built is the house? Well, you're welcome to come into ours that is built on a foundation of prophets and apostles, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. We're not here to tear down your building. We're inviting you to come across the street. In the meantime, don't be deceived. 
continue in steadfastness. Shakers, you're doing well. You are steadfast. I mean, you talk about countercultural. You're living a celibate communitarian lifestyle in an individualistic and immoral world. My hat's off to you. You shakers are amazing. Your steadfastness should wake us up, and we should have some holy envy for that. Bring that steadfastness with you. Continue in it. So many prophets, from Joseph Smith all the way to our day, have told missionaries to let people know that we are not trying to rob them of the good that they have. Hold on to every good truth that you already possess and simply come visit us in our house and see if we can add more. See if there is greater light that you can continue in God. But please continue with the truth that you have. Continue in steadfastness. Look forth for more. For the heavens to open and the Son of Man to come. Prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he continues down that path. Before the great day of the Lord shall come, Jacob shall flourish in the wilderness. The Lamanites shall blossom as the rose. This is part of that last shall be first and first shall be last. This is part of that end of Helam and beginning of third Nephi, the, the day of the Gentiles being fulfilled and the Lamanites blossoming as the rose. The house of Jacob flourishing. Parley P. Pratt was part of that Lamanite mission. Sidney Rigdon joined the church as a result of it. But big things are about to happen. So for you, society of believers in Christ's second appearing, stay, stay believers in that, but recognize it hasn't happened yet. There are yet some signs of the times that need to be fulfilled. And we could use your help. Come and join us and help Jacob flourish. Help the Lamanites blossom as the rose. Verse 25, help Zion flourish upon the hills and rejoice upon the mountains. Help them assemble together unto the place which I have appointed. You shakers, better than most, know what it's like to assemble together in one place. We could use your spiritual gifts as you continue in them and hold them. We're coveting them. We wish we were a little bit more like you in those areas. Please come and help us do that. Visitors welcome indeed. But flourishing upon the hills, rejoicing upon the mountains. Remember why we're assembling to Kirtland to begin with? So God can give us his law of consecration, of communitarian slash capitalistic living. Shakers can help us with that. And to be endowed with power from on high. We're going to build a temple here, the mountain of the Lord. Hills, mountains. Oh, the Northeast Ohio is a higher elevation than what topography might suggest. It's, it's a hill for Zion. It's a mountain for the Lord. Assemble there. Then in verse 26, Behold, I say unto you, Go forth as I have commanded you. Repent of all your sins. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. I'm not sure if that's still intended for the Shakers or if he's now shifted audiences back to the missionaries. Either way, we all have things to repent of. Either way, God promises us blessings and understanding and greater and greater light if we will knock, if we'll ask. The blessings will come. He then concludes this revelation in 27 and 28. Behold, I will go before you and be your rearward and front behind you're in my midst. I will be in your midst, and you shall not be confounded. Behold, I am Jesus Christ, 
and I come quickly. Even so, amen. I love that the Lord keeps ending revelations with that beautiful reminder, that reassurance. I'm coming, and I'm already here, in your midst, before, behind, left and right. I want to be with you. Do you want to be with me? You shakers, do you want to be with me? I know you desire to know in part. Are you ready to know in full? Then come. If not, I'm patient. I'm eternal. I will continue to call. And you can come whenever you choose. I do love that throughout this revelation, again, you know me, I'm always trying to prove contraries here, right? And the beauty of contraries is by having both of them it keeps either side from becoming extreme. Again, the Goldilocks zone that I often refer to, trying to stay in the middle of the celestial path. It's interesting that in this section, and these shaker beliefs that the Lord is trying to help uh, clarify, when we think about the second coming, for example, on one extreme, it's, oh, he's never going to come. And on the other extreme, among these shakers, it's, well, he already has come. You missed it. And in our day, some of us grow a little too overzealous and fanatical when it comes to second coming prep. And on the other hand, there are those who are complacent and apathetic. Eh, whenever it comes, I don't know if it will. When it comes to our view of Jesus Christ, with their thought of him being incarnated in the spirit of divinity and Anne Lee, well, for us, we're not on that extreme. But are we on other extremes of, of misunderstanding Jesus Christ? Is he a mere man who just traveled around teaching good words of wisdom, like a Buddha or a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King. All great men, but none the Son of God. Do we understand who Jesus is? Or, take that to the opposite extreme, is he all divinity to the point of not recognizing his humanity? Not sinfulness, that wasn't part of it, but his, his mortality and recognizing that he did condescend to truly understand us that he didn't float above the mortal experience. He, yes, he walked on water, but he also chose to descend below all things so we can trust him. We can repent of our sins because he's made that possible. When it comes to the first principles and ordinances of the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, and the Holy Ghost, especially baptism, since that was one that the Shakers didn't really care for. Well, on one extreme, it's unimportant. But on the other extreme, is it so important that we're pushing people into the baptismal font who are unprepared for it? That seemed to be part of P. Pratt's overzealousness here, okay? And I want, worry sometimes if, that there are sometimes member missionaries that don't think enough about baptism, and there are full-time missionaries that think a little too much about baptism. And can we find a middle area where we're teaching true principles and, and teaching with urgency and zeal, but also with patience and temperance? When it comes to the eating of meat, are we, are we forcing people into vegetarianism? Or on the other hand, are we over-consuming meat to the point that it is not needful for us? There's a balance that we need to strike somewhere in the middle too. And when it comes to marriage, immorality is the common uh, extreme. But to see celibacy in what was meant to be a procreative relationship, that, that's an extreme that's uh, problematic for the plan of salvation as well. I mean, think about that with so many areas of your own daily life and discipleship. Am I trying to strike the proper balance by proving these contraries and avoiding the negative extremes that are on each end? In my views of self, 
Am I trying to avoid both extremes of feeling worthless or feeling overly proud? In my views of other people, am I trying to avoid either extreme of being overly judgmental or overly indulgent? In my parenting, am I trying to avoid the extremes of, of a dictatorship on one extreme and anarchy on the other? In providing for my family, am I a lazy bum or a workaholic? In my discipleship, am I apathetic or overzealous? In my missionary work, am I spineless or overbearing? I mean, there, you, there's so many areas that we could work on this. And I do love the Lord's approach in section 49 to try to help us strike the proper balance. In addition, I love his approach of working with people of other faiths. Teach correct principles. And then let people govern themselves, even if they choose to reject the principles that we happen to be presenting to them. Be patient. The Lord is. Now, shifting from section 49 to section 50, again, here we see even more clearly this desire on the Lord's part to, to turn up the dimmer switch to help us grow in understanding and, and see clearly the light that he is trying to increase in the world. The context here is interesting too. We talked about this, or we started to at least, in section 46 of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you remember back then, the Lord was warning the saints about uh, being seduced by evil spirits or doctrines of devils. And part of the challenge here is the fact that the church is so young and new in Kirtland. I said, as I said before, the Lamanite missionaries have gone through. We have these converts that have joined. Then the missionaries leave to go on to Missouri. And the, their normal leaders, the ones they're used to, namely Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge, have gone north to go meet Joseph Smith and want to find out more for themselves. And so who's left? Roughly 100 converts who barely know what they just converted to. They know the Book of Mormon's true. That, that's they're solid with. And so they know that Joseph Smith must be a prophet of God. But they haven't even met the guy yet. They know that spiritual gifts are back on the earth, the gift of prophecy and revelation, the gift of translation that produced this scripture. And they are gung-ho about the second coming and, and bringing it on and extending the gospel. And, and Zion is gathering right here and God's going to endow us with power from on high and amazing things happening. But no leadership. It's like trying to teach a, a Sunday school or a primary or youth class where there's all kinds of energy and excitement there. And then you get called out really quick and you have to leave. Uh, and just, I'll, I'll be right back. And you just, you wonder, when I come back and open the door again, what will I see in the classroom? Or like a birthday party with your children and a bunch of little kids, their friends, and it's like, I, I got to step out for a second. And is the house still going to be standing when, when, when I come back? Those of you who have served missions where the church is really young, it's interesting to watch in different places of the world, like what time period of church history are we in? It's like, oh, that branch, they're still in early Kirtland. It's like that one, oh, they've progressed on to Nauvoo. This one, okay, it's, it's you know, Salt Lake time and we're getting more systematized and so on. We're, we're through correlation. But for the, the Kirtland period that was literally in the Kirtland period, whoo, prepare yourself for some confusion here, including some religious excesses. This is the period of the Second Great Awakening. Great revivals that were taking place across America. Remember Joseph Smith as a 14-year-old, okay? Low here and low there, and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterians all fighting one another. Well, especially in, in camp meetings along the frontier, 
And Ohio would qualify for that. Missouri would definitely overqualify for that. But you get these camp meetings where people would come in. I mean, tens of thousands of people. This is like the biggest event on the in, in the frontier that they'd ever been to. And and day long preaching, day after day. And the anxious bench as as potential converts that are starting to feel pulled are, are there as people are singing and praying and and hellfire and brimstone sermons from the preacher right down on them. Yes, they called it the anxious bench for a reason. Uh, but to, just to help facilitate that conversion. But all kinds of, oh, again, religious exercises and excesses. Some people falling down, they'd call it being slain in the spirit. And they'd collapse or faint. There were some that, that people, they were like a barking exercise where people would, would bark like they were animals. It was the animal within them, the natural man coming out. The certain sense of almost acting out their, the, what was taking place on the inside, as far as this change of heart was concerned. It's almost turn the person inside out and let that be expressed on the outside. And some of that was happening among the early converts in Kirtland. Even give it a kind of a Book of Mormon twist, where some were, were feeling like, well, I'm, I'm on a ship and I'm sailing to the promised land, or I'm, I'm a Lamanite and I'm, I'm scalping someone, what they understood of Indian Native American culture and so on. I mean, just some really interesting things to the point that when Parley P. Pratt comes back, he's like, what is going on here? It's like, this has gotten out of hand. Uh, new converts with no leadership, that's a problem. Parley wrote, as I went forth among the different branches, some very strange spiritual operations were manifested, which were disgusting rather than edifying. Disgusting, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean gross, but disgusting, gusto, not pleasing, okay? Just anything shy of edifying. And that's an important word that we'll see in section 50. Some persons would seem to swoon away and make unseemly gestures and be drawn or disfigured in their countenances. Others would fall into ecstasies and be drawn into contortions, cramps, fits, etc. Others would seem to have visions and revelations which were not edifying, there's that word again, and which were not congenial to the doctrine and spirit of the gospel. In short, he said, a false and lying spirit seemed to be creeping into the church. Remember, the saints from New York and Pennsylvania are moving in. Kirtland is headquarters. So it feels like the church itself is, is losing its, its way. And Parley's like, what are we going to do about this? John Whitmer, in his role as church historian, adds his perspective. He says, some had visions and could not tell what they saw. Some would fancy to themselves that they had the sword of Laban and would wield it as expert as a light dragoon. Some would act like an Indian in the act of scalping. Some would slide or scoot on the floor with the rapidity of a serpent, which they termed sailing in the boat to the Lamanites. You get a sense of this Book of Mormon flavor being added to these revivalistic excesses? John Whitmer mentions many other vain and foolish maneuvers that are unseeming and unprofitable to mention. Thus the devil blinded the eyes of some good and honest disciples. I love that John puts it that way. These are good people. They're honest disciples. They're trying their best. But the devil blinds our eyes. No wonder we need greater light to grow brighter and brighter into the perfect day. Whitmer said, These things grieved the servants of the Lord. And some conversed together on this subject. And others came in, and we were at Joseph Smith, Jr., the seers, and made it a matter of consultation. For many would not turn from their folly unless God would give a revelation. Therefore, the Lord spake to Joseph. And that's where we get section 50. 
To me, it's fascinating, especially when, you remember this, when Joseph Smith was, again, 12, 13, 14, leading up to the first vision, and he's going to these camp meetings every chance that he can, and he's noticing other people get religion. That's the phrase that was often used. And he even said, as a, as a young teenager himself, that cares what people think of him at the time, it's a native, cheery temperament and, and fun-loving and so on. He said, I wanted to get religion too. I wanted to be able to sing and shout like everybody else was, but I never felt that. I couldn't do it. I couldn't feel what they said they were feeling. To me, that's fascinating about Joseph as well. He's not going to fake it just to try to fit in with all the, the other religious revivals that are going on. But that may have been some of what was going on among these early saints in Kirtland. Again, if the spiritual gifts have been restored in section 46, and we're supposed to seek them earnestly, covet them, as Paul said, well then, I, I want to speak in tongues, I want to swoon and shout and do all these other things. But again, there's this seduced by evil spirits and doctrines of devils or commandments and philosophies and practices and traditions of men. And I'm grateful that they decided we want to understand from the prophet. We need a revelation from heaven to help direct what is of God and, and what isn't. Remember section 8, where the Lord says that revelation comes to the mind and the heart. Well, that's awesome. But the challenge is the mind, well, I use that too. Are those my thoughts? And my heart, well, that's where my feelings, my emotions go. And I'm not, that's hard to discern as well if that's divine or, or man-made or something even worse. Or even like we saw among the Shakers. Go reason with them, but not according to the way they tend to reason. Mind and heart, balance the two. Make sure that God is behind both of them. Don't succumb to mere logic and rationalism in the absence of spiritual sentiment, but at the same time, don't overcorrect and succumb to mere emotionalism in the absence of doctrinal understanding of truth. There really does need to be this balance here. I remember going to an occasional megachurch revival kind of thing when I lived in the South. The music was incredible. It was like a, a Christian rock concert. And I, but I wondered at times in this emotion that I'm feeling, is that all it is? Is emotionalism? Is it adrenaline that I'm feeling? Or is it the peaceful, still, small voice of the Spirit of God? By the way, the same can happen and perhaps has creeped in on occasion within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints too. Do we sometimes hope to be, become tear-jerkers and, and aim to the emotion of our audience when we're bearing our testimony or, or giving a talk? Or as I once heard in a caution from a leader of church education, beware that you do not trust in the arm of flesh. I loved that, the way he, he shared that. It's one thing to trust in the arm of flesh, but do we sometimes in our teaching or in our preaching, do we trust too much in the arm of flesh, hoping that we can overawe someone in hopes of, oh, that's really going to, oh, it's going to get them. They're going to they're gonna know it's true. Section 50 is good advice for us as well as early Kirtland to help us understand what's really coming from God as opposed to other sources. So verse 1, the Lord begins, Hearken, that word almost omnipresent, Hearken, O ye elders of my church, and give ear to the voice of the living God, and attend to the words of wisdom which shall be given unto you, according as ye have asked and are agreed as touching the church, and the spirits which have gone abroad in the earth. So yes, this is the living God that is willing to give you living 
gifts of the Spirit. There's a belief prominent in most areas of Protestantism. Uh, I believe it's called cessationism. And it's the idea that the spiritual gifts, which existed in the New Testament, there's no denying that, but there was a cessation of those spiritual gifts. They serve their purpose. They're no longer necessary. I mean, we have the Bible after all, and that's all that we need. Pentecostal Christianity, on the other hand, or sometimes known as charismatic Christianity, and, and uh, Pentecostalism often is not like a, a standalone church, although there are plenty of Pentecostal churches, but sometimes there are Pentecostal or charismatic movements within existing churches. There's a charismatic Catholicism, for example. Uh, and what charismatic, charisma, or charism, like, a, like an anointing, there's a strong belief in the continuation, not the cessation, but the continuation of spiritual gifts. So Pentecostalism is huge when it comes to the, to the gift of tongues, for example. Many even define that themselves by that spiritual gift. So I do love that the Lord introduces him here as the living God with, with living spiritual gifts. Right? Seventh article of faith. We still believe in those things. The gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues and visions and prophecy and revelation. We believe in that. This is the living God. But you do need to be aware of the spirits, plural, which have gone abroad in the earth. Some from God and some not from God. Seducing spirits, like we saw in section 46. But because you've asked and because you're agreed as touching the church, Love this. There's a humility on their part, a recognition. We don't know what to do here, and so we're seeking your divine guidance, and a unity on our part. We've come together touching, agreed as touching this one thing. So here comes the answer. Verse 2, Behold, verily I say unto you, that there are many spirits which are false spirits, which have gone forth in the earth deceiving the world. Now we don't necessarily have to think of demonic possession here. It can simply be other isms or rival ideologies, false spirits that have gone forth in the earth, deceiving us. This to me sounds a lot like what we saw back in section 38 also, which was such an important section for us to understand. Section 38 is foundational for so much of what we'll see later on, especially when it comes to the law of consecration. So if you never watched section 38, uh, you might want to go back. I, I would highly encourage you to go back and watch that video. But this idea of the enemy in secret chambers seeking your destruction, so much of that is the, these false spirits that are deceiving the world. And again, think of spirits in terms of ideologies, worldly philosophies, rival isms, getting us to think differently. And especially when we think that they're right, when we think that they're from God, that, that is deceiving the world. And that's a scary place to be. Verse 3, you see the source of it all. Also, Satan hath sought to deceive you. Why? That he might overthrow you. You see, most of us aren't so blind as to go headlong into evil. So what does Satan do? No wonder Isaiah talked about turning bitter into sweet and sweet into bitter and replacing good with evil and evil with good. Darkness with light, light with darkness. If he can kind of overturn the world, get us upside down, if he can deceive us, then of course he can overthrow us because it doesn't feel like we're being overthrown. It, it, it's working within the ism that we've accepted. He's changed the, the ground rules of the game. And now we're just playing within the game. And, and it feels like we're winning. Oh, be, beware of that deception. Remember, that is one of the defining signs of the times. False Christs, false prophets, false teachers, 
false isms, false spirits, and to see through that darkness, no wonder we're going to need greater light. Verse 4, Behold, I the Lord have looked upon you and have seen abominations in the church that profess my name. Ooh, so we were right back in section 49 to realize that it's not just the shakers that need to repent. It's the Latter-day Saints that need to also. Now, notice something that's interesting here that I think the grammar will help us with. I remember in high school learning about certain nouns that are singular, but also plural at the same time. Words like band. Because if you have a band, that's one thing. It's the band. But what's the band made up of? A bunch of musicians. Or team. Team is a singular noun, but it is composed of multiple players, right? And so to me, it's interesting to think of church like that. Is church singular or plural? Yes. It's one church, right? And we're meant to become one, one heart, one mind. He really does want it to be a singular noun. But it is composed of many members. And so there's that plurality there. And often you can tell if, if we're thinking individually or if we're thinking collectively. Uh, if, in other words, if we're thinking uh, singularly or plurally based on the verb that is used. Now this can get a little tricky because we normally don't say the band play well. That just sounds weird. We say the band plays well because plays is a singular verb. Uh, like he plays or she plays or it plays. We don't say they plays. Uh, and so when the band plays, oh, that's just one band. Or the team plays well. It's actually fascinating in U.S. history because we always talk about the United States is the country of my birth, so to speak. But in the early days, it was the United States are. Is is the singular verb for the singular nation, the United States. But are is the plural verb. And it was often used, up, up, honestly, through the Civil War, are was used more often than is. And so it's the United States are, recognizing these are individual states, right? States' rights was huge in the 19th century. So the United States are going to war versus the United States is going to war. Well, sorry for the long grammar lesson, but look at verse 4. I have seen abominations in the church that profess my name. Now, is profess a singular or a plural verb? We say he, she, or it professes, but we say they profess. So profess is the plural form of the verb. So what does that say about the church? You would think that it would say, I've, I've looked upon you, I've seen abominations in the church that professes my name. You collective Latter-day Saints, you, this one singular body of saints, the church that professes my name has some things to repent of. Well, what's interesting is he says, no, it's the church that profess my name. I'm talking about the band members, the team players, the church members that profess my name. I see abominations there. Remember when he said that? You are clean, but not all. Or back in section 1 when he says, the only true and living church upon the face of the earth with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. Speaking collectively and not individually. Individually, you've still got some things to repent of. There are still members of the church that profess my name, but need to repent of their sins. I'm grateful that the Lord sees us as a, as a whole, as one. 
but also recognizes the differences that you individuals are trying to make in your individual life. It's an interesting combination of the two. Now verse 5, blessed are they, so now we see more clearly that it's plural members he's talking about. Blessed are they who are faithful and endure, whether in life or in death, for they shall inherit eternal life. That middle phrase is a little unnerving. Hey, whether you live or you die, just be faithful, just endure, you'll, you'll get there. You'll inherit eternal life. There's still lots of persecution, that's what's driving them towards Ohio already, and there's going to be plenty there as well. Just endure, be faithful. Verse 6, But woe unto them that are deceivers and hypocrites. For thus saith the Lord, I will bring them to judgment. In verse 5, I'm less concerned about outside opposition. Just be faithful and endure. But verse 6, I am more concerned about inside deception and hypocrisy. See, here's part of the challenge, especially when you think of hypocrisy. He'll, he'll bring that up again in verse 7. Behold, verily I say unto you, there are hypocrites among you, who have deceived some, which has given the adversary power, but behold, such shall be reclaimed. So good news there, at the end at least, though those who have been deceived can and will be reclaimed if they'll just recognize the light for what it is. But the concern about hypocrisy, which causes deception, which gives the adversary power, that's on us. Hypocrisy, I mean, the Greek word itself means a, a stage actor. You're playing a part. You're wearing a mask. You, you're not who you say you are. This is just a role you're playing. And the irony here, especially if you think about revivalistic religion and new converts to a church that is proclaiming the restoration of spiritual gifts. Wow, I mean, if you want to prove that you're, you know, show your credentials, then show off your spiritual gifts and prophesy and reveal and have visions and speak in tongues and and if you can't, and, if, and fake it till you make it, because then at least people will think that you're part of those chosen people. Remember we saw that back in section 46 about this closed community of visible saints? You've got to prove that you're among the elect. Well, no better way to show that than to, to show the overabundance of spiritual gifts with which you've been given. In early American Christian history, when the Puritans came over, there was a challenge of deception and hypocrisy among them. Because they just left all the worldlings back in, in England. And now here we are, the, the righteous. But even within a smaller group, the, people tend to want to stand out. And the superiority and pride within us makes us want to look better than our peers. And, well, what a bummer. We had plenty of peers to look down on back when we were in England. But now, when it's just the best of the best, well, I have to distinguish myself from my peers here. The same thing happened when the saints got to Utah, by the way. There's not all the other worldlings in Missouri or Illinois to, to feel better than. Now we've got to feel better than each other. And that, that's a nightmare as far as a recipe for hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a recipe for deception. And deception is a recipe for adversarial power. No wonder Satan tries to deceive. If he can convince us we have spiritual gifts when we don't really, or convince us that other people's spiritual gifts are just fakery as well, to the point that now oh, there's, there's no more miracles and oh, well, that means there's no faith and that's exactly what the adversary is after. Like I said before, I am so grateful and impressed that a teenage Joseph Smith wouldn't fake spiritual gifts just so he could quote-unquote get religion and fit in with his revivalistic neighbors. It was no, I will wait for true spiritual gifts 
from a living God. And I will not succumb to false and seducing spirits that have gone forth across the earth. Now, end of verse 7, how will those who have been deceived be reclaimed? Well, part of it's verse 8. The hypocrites shall be detected and shall be cut off, either in life or in death. So, again, sometimes we might have to endure some questions in this life. I don't even know. Even as I will, the Lord says. Some I will help you detect and discern now. Some will come later. We are all still looking through a glass darkly, as Paul says, as we await the light growing brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. People sometimes worry about uh, the Hoffman forgeries. And did he, he tricked the first presidency. How could they not know? Well, was that hypocrisy and deception eventually detected? Was it eventually cut off? Yes. Did it happen as early as we or the prophets of the church would have liked? No. That's part of our collective coming to understanding as well. It will happen even as the Lord will, he says in verse 8, and then says, Woe unto them who are cut off from my church, for the same are overcome of the world. That's always the tug of war that's going on. That's the, the custody battle that's taking place. Remember, who's your daddy and who's your mom? If it's the choice between Christ and Satan, that's an easy one to make. But if you go from fathers to mothers and realize Christ is married to his church and Satan is married to the world, ooh, that's a tougher decision. And if I'm cut off from the church, if I've chosen to cut myself off from that mother, well, who's the other wicked stepmother, <laughs> to borrow Disney princess stories? Uh, that wicked stepmother is the world. And we will be overcome by it because we've, been, we've cut ourselves off from a mother who actually loves and will nurture us. So where does that leave us? Verse 9, Wherefore let every man beware, lest he do that which is not in truth and righteousness before me. Beware. Be aware. Open your eyes to any influx of light that you can gain so that you can become true and righteous before God. Now verse 10, he's going to start getting to the, the specific question that they have in mind. Now come, saith the Lord, by the Spirit, unto the elders of his church, and let us reason together, that ye may understand. Remember the Lord says that through Isaiah, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. He's doing the same thing here. By the Spirit to the elders, the Lord is saying, come and let us reason together. Why? So that you can understand. Now that word is going to be essential for all that follows. Understanding. I think at the end of Matthew 13, if I remember correctly, the Lord has taught all these parables of the kingdom. And at the end of the chapter, he asks, do you understand this? It's like, I, I want to make sure that I am clear here. At the end of 2 Nephi, Nephi says that. I want to be, I speak, I glory in plainness. Why? So that you can understand the Lord is willing to condescend to our comprehension. He wants us to get it. And that word understand or understood will appear, I think, seven times in this one revelation. It's going to be key to our discerning of if a spirit is true or false. I want you to understand. So verse 11, let us reason even as a man reasoneth one with another face to face. I want this to make sense to you. Remember, we saw that back in section 45. I will give you my strong reason. I will give you wisdom. Uh, the, the world may make you a laughing stock and reduce you to the absurd. But you want, you want to go rationalism? You want to go wisdom? I'm, I'm, all, I'm all for it. Okay? 
Yeah, so let us reason together. Verse 12. Now, when a man reasoneth, he is understood of man, because he reasoneth as a man. Even so will I, the Lord, reason with you, that you may understand. So again, this idea of reasoning, in fact, that's really interesting. When we think, okay, well, reason is all uh, empirical. It's rational. It's scientific. Well, it depends. Because if you don't understand as a result, then you still haven't reasoned sufficiently. And to be honest, since we are human beings, to truly understand something, and more importantly, to understand truly someone, the emotion and the rationalism, both are required. Again, head and heart. So even the Lord's reasoning, if it's meant to truly come to an understanding of one another, like, I get you. It's not just that mentally I can, I can acknowledge the truthfulness of what you've said. It's like, do I really understand what you said, why you said it, where you're coming from, what it means to you, your meaning and intention, all of that. That's where reason, the Lord's reason is aiming, that we can fully understand one another. So, verse 13. This is the core issue in this revelation. The one thing he wants us to understand more than anything else. Wherefore, I, the Lord, ask you this question. Unto what were ye ordained? Why did I call you? Why did I set you apart? Why did I ordain you to go share the gospel? Well, here's the answer. Verse 14, to preach my gospel. How? By the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth to teach the truth. I want you to understand. I want you to see clearly. That's why I'm sending the Spirit to you, the Comforter, to teach you truth. It's why I'm sending you out to go teach others. Again, that Shaker mission, I was hoping that you would help them understand these truths and to reason with them, but reason in my way, not, not in their way. We're not Bible bashing. We're not proof texting. We're not relying on rationalism alone. We're trying to teach by the power of God. Back to 1 Corinthians 2. I'm determining not to know anything but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not relying upon the on words of man's wisdom. I want you to rely on the power of God. That's where your faith has to lie. So you missionaries, you church members, you who are ordained to go share the gospel, please do it in my way. And my way is the spiritual way. So what, how does that compare with the kinds of quote-unquote spiritual maneuvers. Remember that was John uh, Whitmer's word? So interesting. Your maneuvers. You're trying, again, hypocrisy and deception. You're trying to act like you have the Spirit with you instead of standing still and letting God manifest Him. To be still and know that I am God. That's the irony when, when people sometimes attack the faithful and say, oh, it, it's just confirmation bias and you're willing yourself into these spiritual experiences. Man, I hope they're wrong. In, in real cases, I know they are. In times where I have truly felt the Holy Ghost, I know that is not self-induced, or I would be inducing it more often, because I love that feeling. But I worry sometimes, have there been times where people are trying to will themselves or others into a spiritual experience, as if we're controlling the Holy Ghost, instead of the Holy Ghost I'll put it this way. I remember as a missionary feeling, you know, the, the difference between senior companions and junior companions. And I sometimes felt, unfortunately, that it was my role to be senior companion and the Holy Ghost was supposed to be junior companion. As if to say, okay, have, uh, Spirit, I'm going to teach this, this, and this. Can you please testify of the truth here and there and there? 
okay? Or giving a lesson or a fireside or whatever it might be. And it's like, Heavenly Father, please, even selflessly, even sincerely, please send the Spirit to confirm the things that I'm trying to teach. Well, I learned who the real senior companion is and that the Spirit wants to teach certain things, that God wants to convey certain truths. And he uses us as his mouthpiece, mercifully on his part, generously, to let us be involved at all. But my prayer started to change, especially when people would ask me to give a fireside or a talk or a lesson without giving me the subject. Because then my prayers became, instead of, Heavenly Father, will you please testify of the things I'm teaching? Reverse it. Recognize the true senior companion. And the prayer became, Heavenly Father, please inspire me to say the things that you want to testify of. You, you're in charge. And if there are things that you need to convey to your children, then please fill my mouth when I open it. Please send your spirit to me so I know what to say as your desire really is to send your spirit to connect with the people you've called me to teach. I hope that makes sense. We have to learn to teach in that way. We have to learn to preach God's gospel. It's mine. Again, possessive pronoun here. By the Spirit, even the Comforter, which was sent forth. It's the Spirit that's sent to teach. So we're not even teaching. Our verb is preach. The Spirit's verb is teach. We can convey, we can explain, but it's the Spirit that's really going to weave these truths into the souls of those that we're preaching to, but only if we do it in the Lord's way. So verse 15, as the Lord tries to reason with us so that we can come to an understanding, then received ye spirits which ye could not understand, and received them to be of God, and in this are ye justified? I mean, really think about that. You're receiving these quote-unquote spirits, uh, and claiming that they're of God. Look at all these things I'm doing. But are you coming to any kind of understanding there? What do you understand now better than you understood before after this, this swooning or the, the, the scalping or whatever you thought you were doing? Do you know me better than you knew me before? Have you come to an understanding? If not, then you're not justified in doing those things. Have, you, have your students... Have the members of your congregation, the people that you're teaching or testifying or doing these amazing object lessons for, whatever it might be, are they truly coming to understand in more significant, powerful ways the truths of God? Or are they just amazed by your arm of flash? Because if so, then how are you justified as a teacher or preacher of righteousness? In verse 16, he says, Behold, ye shall answer this question yourselves. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto you. He that is weak among you hereafter shall be made strong. I am so grateful for verse 16. Because right in the middle of all this, where I'm starting to feel bad at the end of 15, like, I don't know, have I been doing this wrong this whole time? What, what, am, what am I doing here? Am I justified in what I'm trying to do? Because we're all called upon to teach and share the gospel. Are we doing it right? Well, right there in 16, I love at the beginning. Well, you shall answer this question yourselves. It's kind of like what he did back in section 49. I'm going to give you my standard. I'll let you decide how, fall, how far you sh fall short of it. Okay? And don't worry, I'm merciful. All that when you recognize how, fall, how far you've fallen short, recognize that all that gap is filled with grace and patience on my part. 
I'll be merciful. If you recognize your weakness and are humble there, I mean, I'm trying to detect the, de the deceivers here, right? I'm trying to reclaim those who've been duped. If, if you'll fill this space with humility and repentance, I'll fill it with mercy and with grace. And your weak things will be made strong. There's Ether 12.27 again. But again, just I'm teaching correct principles. I'll let you govern and even judge yourself. I'm hoping that you're understanding these things because then the Spirit can really work on you and it's the Spirit that has to do the real work. Then 17, Verily I say unto you, He that is ordained of me and sent forth to preach the word of truth by the Comforter, in the Spirit of truth, doth he preach it by the Spirit of truth or some other way? Because 18, if it be by some other way, it is not of God. No wonder Paul was so adamant and so determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. So adamant and so determined not to rest his confidence in, in the arm of flesh or flash or anything else. There is only one way to teach God's truth and that's in God's way. And that's by God's spirit. I remember that hitting me as a missionary when people would want a Bible bash. And remember, contention is of the devil. So often in 3 Nephi, even when you have a good goal, if it's, if it's the wrong means to get there, then the Lord rejects it. It is not of me. It's some other way. And I remember that hitting me because I thought I was a pretty good Bible basher. Uh, I practiced in high school, sadly. Uh, I, I thought I knew my stuff. I, I, I poured over scripture so I could answer people's questions and prove that we were right. And what a lousy <laughs> high school missionary I was. All zeal and no patience. All passion and no love. But to learn to just trust. To teach correct principles and let them choose. To testify and let the Spirit work on a human heart. It hit me once in a conversation we had with a pair of Jehovah's Witnesses that were wonderful, older couple, but they wouldn't let us sing, they wouldn't let us pray, and they wouldn't let us say anything that was not straight out of the Bible and the Bible alone. And I remember thinking, wow, um, that's not going to get us very far. Or thinking of my conversations and dealings with anti-Mormons and wanting to rationalize everything and, realize, and get, you know, trying to attack one another's beliefs and things and realizing... Why would I play your game with your weapons when the only real weapon I have is the sword of the Spirit and the Word? Literally, that is the only weapon we have in the armor of God. Everything else is just to try to protect us from their weapons with our salvation and our righteousness and our faith and everything else. But the sword, all I, my only hope in cutting to the chase in cutting through the darkness and confusion, the deception and the hypocrisy, is with the Word of God, preached in purity through the Spirit of God. Anything less than that, anything other than that, is not of God. It's some other way. So will it always be immediate fireworks? Will it always be some kind of tangible or, or ultra-rational proving of things. No, but it'll be something better than that. If we are as patient as the Lord is, 
in verse 16, if we're as merciful to people, if we're as, as able and willing to roll with the weakness of others until God makes them strong, if we'll just let them answer those questions themselves as the Spirit works upon their heart. I'm grateful that by the end of my mission, I was starting to understand that. And I became less of a dispenser of answers and more a builder of faith. Even when that sometimes included me withholding an answer to give someone else space to exercise and develop their own faith and come to an answer themselves. Oh, it takes patience. It takes trust. It takes faith. But aren't those attributes that the Lord is trying to develop within us and within others anyway? We have to learn to do it the Lord's way. Now, if that 17 and 18 is for us as preachers, then look at 19 and 20 for others as learners. And that's us too when we are in the role of learner. Verse 19, again, so here's the other half. He that receiveth the word of truth. See, 17 was preaching the word of truth. 19 is receiving the word of truth. If you receive the word of truth, doth he receive it by the spirit of truth or some other way? And then 20, another echo, if it be some other way, it is not of God. Now I will let each of us, myself included, I'll let us ponder what some of those other ways might look like. This is a very personal and individual thing. No wonder verse 16, the Lord just lets us answer this ourselves. As we stare ourselves in the mirror and, and critique our own teaching or testifying, our own preaching or publishing, our own leadership, what our service, whatever it might be, what are the other ways that we might be doing it that aren't quite the way of God? We have to get on the Lord's wavelength. It's his gospel and his servants and his spirit and his children and his everything. We've got to learn to do it his way. I love how he says it in verse 21. Therefore, why is it that ye cannot understand? There's that word again. And know, beyond just understanding, true knowledge, that he that receiveth the word by the spirit of truth, receiveth it as it is preached by the spirit of truth. I mean, speaking of being on the same wavelength, I mean, be getting on the same page, preacher and receiver, uh, speaker and hearer. In fact, back to that word receiver, that was my position in high school and a year of college. I was a wide receiver. One of my mission came back, I was a wider receiver, and so I hung up the cleats and they didn't miss me. But uh, I remember as a receiver, I was at the mercy of a quarterback that could get me the ball that thought I was open and trusted that I would actually be able to receive what he was offering me. The Lord is the ultimate quarterback. He's got pinpoint passing exactly where the ball needs to be. Are we getting open? Are we uh, avoiding the enemy? Are we, are we coming unto him, coming back to the ball, grabbing it, doing something with it? There's, I love the, the, the verb receive. But in this case, the quarterback and the receiver really do have to be on the same page. I remember as high school kids, this was what, 30 years ago. Uh, so the, the 
football has progressed far beyond this. But I remember we were kind of cutting edge at the time for this run and shoot offense that we ran in, as high school kids. And we had four receivers and one tailback and who needs a tight end and who needs a fullback? Let's just throw the ball every down that we can. Loved it as a receiver. But it was interesting that uh, even in our uh, you know, juvenile high school offense, we had, we had, the plays were pretty amazing that there'd be certain stems for every passing route. But then when you get to a certain point, if you've been reading the defense, and back then it was pr fairly simple on a high school level, is this man-to-man is this -man defense or is it three-deep zone or is it two-deep zone? I'm sorry if I've lost you already. I remember it took, I think, four years for my mom to finally say, wait a minute, I get it. Offense has the ball. Defense doesn't have the ball. I'm like, awesome, mom. You really figured it out. Uh, love you, mom, for your attempts. But uh, to understand on our level, as a receiver, I'm there on the line of scrimmage, and I'm looking at the defense and trying to figure out what of those three, what kind of defense are they playing? And the quarterback was looking at the defense trying to read the same thing. And we'd all have the, the play would be called. We'd have the same stem on our pass patterns. But when we got to a point where there was going to be a shift, where you're going to you know, post in or corner out or come back or whatever it might be, we would, do, we would change it just enough based on the defense. And if it was three deep zone, we'd stop and come back for the ball. If it was two deep zone, we'd, we'd find a, a seam to be able to exploit. If it was man to man, we'd fake and then cut across the middle somehow. And it seemed that what was amazing for us was it really did feel like we were invincible. Because no matter what the defense throw, throw, threw at us, we had a way to adapt to it. And the, to me, again, as a you know, high school kid, what was most amazing to me is that the receivers and the quarterback didn't actually have to communicate about it at all. It was unspoken, but it was not unseen. We both knew we were reading the same defense and as long as we both read it correctly, the quarterback knew I was going to break in because it was man-to-man, -man, we could tell. And so he'd throw it to where I was supposed to be, and hopefully I was where I needed to be. What I love about this idea of teaching and receiving, if it's by the same Spirit, that's touchdown every time. If, if I'm preaching by the Spirit, if you're learning receiving by the Spirit, or if you're, if you're teaching me and I'm learning... You understand what it's about? We just have to get on the same page. And it's the Lord's page. He is the Word made flesh. And it's His sword in hand that will cut through the darkness and introduce us to the light. When that happens, like I said, touchdown every time, verse 22 is the description of that score. Wherefore, he that preacheth, there's the quarterback, and he that receiveth, there's the receiver. Three things. Number one, they understand one another. It's what the Lord's been after this whole time. Do you get it? Can we reason together? Do you understand? Two, both are edified. Remember that was the word that kept coming up in uh, Parley P. Pratt or, or John Whitmer's description of what's happening. It, it just wasn't edifying. Both are edified. And third, they rejoice together. I love this. It's mutual understanding. It's mutual edification. It's mutual rejoicing. I mean, sound like Zion? One heart, one mind, uh, dwelling in righteousness, no poor among us. Those are golden moments in a classroom or in an interview or in a missionary discussion or in a church talk or any time it might be giving and receiving, speaking and hearing. 
I pray that that happens even through the medium of a podcast or a YouTube video. I pray that we can understand one another. I pray that, that you're edified and that I'm edified too. There are times where I can feel that taking place on my end and praying that it's taking place for you on yours. To edify. The word edifice is a building. Remember to build a better house across the street? Don't tear down theirs. Just let them tour the, the new building and move if they choose. To edify one another. To build each other up. And to feel that. And no wonder at the end of class, rejoicing takes place. I remember feeling that with certain seminary classes 20 years ago where there was such a unity among these teenagers. They were connecting with one another and connecting with me as a teacher. And most of all, all of us were connecting with heaven. There were some classes, I mean, literally, they, they, the whole class refused to ever miss a day of scripture study. It was a little piece of Zion right there at that seminary building. And it was amazing to be a part of. And I remember at times there was so much mutual understanding and so much mutual edification, and best of all, so much mutual rejoicing. We just didn't want the semester to end. I would joke sometimes that where I taught was just a couple of miles away from the, the Mount Timpanogos Temple. And I would joke because the semester was ending and everyone was you know, super excited for summer vacation, but they're like, no, we don't want seminary to end. And I'd laugh and say, you know what we should do? We should take a class field trip down to the Timpanogos Temple and get sealed as a seminary class then not even death can separate us. And they'd be like, can we do that? I'd always laugh and go, no, sorry. Uh, but we can all be sealed to God. And if that happens, then eventually we can have a class reunion in the celestial kingdom. Can, can, we, can we hold out hope for that? Honestly, this, this rejoicing together that happens in, in the best scenario of true gospel teaching, I pray that's the case. Whichever side we happen to be on, teacher or learner. And thankfully, we get to switch roles frequently in the church. But that's really what we're after. That's when you can tell that you have taught and received by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, God's way instead of some other way. Now take all that and boil it down to verse 23 and then to our, our hook scripture, verse 24. Verse 23, that which doth not edify is not of God, and therefore by definition is darkness. That's a fascinating verse. I mean, two lines, super short. Hopefully short enough for us to actually remember it, because there's his criteria. All these false spirits going out in the world, or the philosophies of men, the isms and ideologies that are out there, how can I tell? How can I reason and and discern. How can I understand? Well, that's it. Does it edify? Because if it doesn't, then it's not of God. It's amazing that he, he doesn't even include the neutral. I mean, it's one thing to go, oh, well, God definitely doesn't claim the negative. But God doesn't even claim the neutral. He's like, no, no, no. If, it's not, if it doesn't edify, it's like God is saying, I never leave people the same way I found them. I always leave them better. I edify them. I build them up. And that's one way you can tell that God is at work here. So the anxious bench or the swooning and, and spiritual excesses and, and exercises that you're involved in, did it leave you better? 
I don't know. I mean, go back to Lehman Copley's Shakerism. Did it leave him better? In many areas, it actually did. They wanted to know in part, and that part was of God. When we say to people, keep all the truth you have and just simply come and see if we can add to it, we're acknowledging God has already edified you in your other religion or your other ideologies or other experiences that you've had. He's building you. He's trying to get you to grow up in Him. There's just more stories that He's trying to construct. So come. And all that in context of 24, that which is of God is light. Compare that to the darkness he mentioned in 23. And he that receiveth light, like he's been talking about for the last few verses, receiving it in God's way. If you're receiving light and continuing in God, don't give up on him. He's not giving up on you. Don't ring the bell and end class before class is actually over. If you'll continue in God, what's the result? You will receive more light. And that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. This is second coming context where the sun will descend. Well, are we looking for the sun to rise with healing in his wings? Are we looking for the dawn? The day dawn is breaking. The world is awaking. Do we recognize the brightness of the light of the world? And he's only just begun. The light is on, but oh, the dimmer switch. There is so much greater fullness as we, as we grow towards that perfect day. Now verse 25, he says, Again, verily I say unto you, and I say it that you may know the truth, that you may chase darkness from among you. A great mental image, to chase darkness. To, to almost picture it as this, uh, an, an object instead of simply the absence of light. And, but with my light, I am chasing it out into the corners and then out of the corners. I mean, just, it's gone. It's the perfect day we're after. Then verse 26, he that is ordained of God and sent forth, the same is appointed to be the greatest, notwithstanding he is the least and the servant of all. So stay humble. You've got some weak things that need to be made strong, like I said back in verse 16. But you do have power. You've been ordained to do things my way. And if you'll do them my way, which in involves your own humility, you're the least, you're the servant of all, then what will happen? Miracles. 27, wherefore he is possessor of all things, for all things are subject unto him, both in heaven and on the earth, the life and the light, the spirit and the power, sent forth by the will of the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. That is such a powerful verse. To be the possessor of all things. Remember that phrase uh, in Hiram's Revelation, back section 11, that before you seek to declare my word, seek to obtain my word, to obtain, to possess, if through the Holy Ghost you possess all things. Uh, that, that, again, we're, it's going to take a lot of growth before we get there. Okay? Growing up in God, brighter and brighter, perfect day. But to possess all things until all things are subject unto you, whether in heaven or on earth. No wonder we can bind on earth and have it bound in heaven when you have the sealing power. Or loose on earth and have it loosed in heaven. God will honor that because that person honors God. No wonder you'll have, you'll possess the life and the light. It'll be in you. The spirit and the power. Do you understand what he's describing in verse 27? 
I think all of those words need to be reinserted back into the conversation we had earlier about God's way or some other way. When we're doing it in God's way, man, it is heaven and earth coming together. It is life and light coming together. It is spirit and power coming together. And it's all by the will of the Father through Christ the Son. This is how God wants it to be. Because it connects us to Him. It connects us to His Son. It connects us to His other children. It, we come together. We understand one another. We edify each other. We rejoice together. That's Zion. That's what we're trying to build here. Now verse 28, again, this is a long way off. Because 28, no man is possessor of all things except he be purified and cleansed from all sin. Oh, no wonder we're so far away from it. Man, purified and cleansed from all sin? I've got to be perfect? Well, no, you've got to be perfected in Christ. Moroni clarified that beautifully at the end of the Book of Mormon. I, this, this is, speaking of grammar, this is really kind past participle. It's not he must be pure and clean. No, it's he must be purified and cleansed from all sin. Again, go back to verse 16. I will be merciful unto you. I'll make your weak things strong. You understand why you need to do it my way? Because it connects you to me. And then you'll see your weak points. You'll see the gaps that are filled with my grace that then can be filled with your own repentance. Eventually you will possess all things. We're not there yet. Verse 29, but when we get there, if ye are purified and cleansed from all sin, then what happens? Ye shall ask whatsoever you will in the name of Jesus, and it shall be done. No wonder you're a possessor of all things. But, verse 30, know this, it shall be given you what you shall ask. And as you are appointed to the head, the spirits shall be subject unto you. No wonder it'll be given what you'll ask, because it will be given you to know what to ask for. This is like what happened to the Nephites in 3 Nephi, where it says they did not multiply many words, for it was given unto them what they should pray, and they were filled with desire. See, that's the one thing we can contribute. I want to do God's work in God's way. So, Heavenly Father, help me know what your way is. What's your goal? Remember, it's not you testify of what I want to teach. It's help me know what to teach that you want to testify of. May thy will be done in all of these things. And then if I can supply the desire there, filled with desire like those Nephites were. I've joked sometimes with students that when you were little, your parents would whisper in your ear what you should pray for. I guess we're not supposed to outgrow that. It's just a different parent doing the whispering now. These are the things I want to give you. Ask me for them. No wonder the answers will come. Like he says at the end of 30, even the spirits shall be subject unto you. You will know what are the false spirits. You'll know what are the true ones. You'll know real spiritual gifts and which ones to covet earnestly and which ones aren't actual gifts of God at all but are seducing spirits and deceptive and hypocritical things. In verse 31, wherefore it shall come to pass. So wherefore, consequently, because of all this stuff that we've taught, wherefore it shall come to pass that if you behold a spirit manifested that you cannot understand and you receive not that spirit, you shall ask of the Father in the name of Jesus. And if he give not unto you that spirit, then you may know that it is not of God. 
See, this whole time the Lord's been trying to answer their question. All this interesting stuff that's happening, strange things as part of P. Pratt called them. Is this really from God or not? I don't know. Again, picture a teenage Joseph Smith. I want to get religion, but that way? I don't know. Well, ask for it. Think about it this way. Can you understand that spirit? Is it edifying you? Does it come when you are asking for it? Is this a spiritual gift worth seeking? Will it edify you? Will it edify others? Does it build you up towards God with mutual understanding and mutual edification and mutual, mutual rejoicing? Is that happening? If not, then you can know it's not of God. If I can't receive it, it must not be God on the other end of the pass. Because God is such a, a prolific quarterback that his gifts are receivable when we are honest in heart. In verse 32, it shall be given unto you power over that spirit, and you shall proclaim against that spirit with a loud voice that it is not of God. So there's confidence behind this discernment where you can clearly know, no, that is, that is a philosophy of man, or that is a seducing spirit. Remember, 46, because some are of God, and some are of man, and some are of, are of the devil. Is this celestial, terrestrial, telestial? What's this coming from? You'll know, and you'll be able to declare it, proclaim it. Now be careful with that. Verse 33, he cautions them, not with railing accusation, that ye be not overcome, neither with boasting nor rejoicing, lest you be seized therewith. Now that's an interesting one. Because we're, we're trying to overcome the devil so that the devil doesn't overcome us, right? Uh, deception and hypocrisy gives the, the, the power to the adversary. And we want to overthrow the, the adversary before he overthrows us. But it's interesting that what we recognize his falsehood. We, we discern the false spirits. We declare or proclaim against them. It can be loud. It can be clear. But in 33, it's not with railing accusation or with boasting or even with rejoicing. Which to me is fascinating because it suggests this is not a, a cha-na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. It's not, it's not that. It's not an in-your-face and I beat you. It's not cackling over the, our defeated adversary. This isn't a Bible bash. That's not the Lord's way. It's not even contentious when it's the devil we're, we're up against. It is overcoming. It is proclaiming. It is discerning. It is resisting. But it's not boasting or rejoicing or railing against him. Because what is that? That's You've just played into his game even when you just beat him. It's, it's overcoming his weapons and at the last moment succumbing to them by picking up his weapon against him when it ends up being against ourselves. It's, it's playing into pride which is part of the problem to begin with. It is humility that will bring us the victory. But we need to accept the victory humbly as well. Now verse 34, kind of back to this receiving and, and giving in the same spirit. He that receiveth of God, let him account it of God. And let him rejoice that he is accounted of God worthy to receive. You see what he's saying there? If it's a gift, then there's a giver behind it. And it's to the giver that all the glory goes. If you've received something of God, a spiritual gift, 
the ability to connect with someone else, just anything that he's given, then recognize the giver of the gift and give him credit. Account it of God. Rejoice that God would even use us. If we're willing to do that, then no wonder God can trust us with those spiritual gifts. It's not self-aggrandizing. It's not about us. We're not trying to get religion in order to get glory or praise of man. We're trying to, to receive of God so that we can connect ourselves and others to him. Verse 35, by giving heed and doing these things which ye have received, and which ye shall hereafter receive. Since we're, I'm trying to get you to grow up in God. This is brighter and brighter under the perfect day with continual growth. Then the kingdom is given you of the Father and power to overcome all things which are not ordained of him. It's yours. You can do this. Verse 36, Behold, verily I say unto you, Blessed are you who are now hearing these words of mine from the mouth of my servant, for your sins are forgiven you. I told you I would be merciful to you. I told you I tried to make weak things strong. I love the fact, this is, reminds me of section 28. Remember section 28 was Hiram Page and his seer stone and the false uh, revelations that he was getting to the point that Oliver Cowdery himself got duped by it. Again, we're back to deception and I don't know if there was hypocrisy there or not, but uh, on Hiram Page's part. But what's interesting is what does the Lord say at the end of section 28 after basically letting him know that you got it wrong? He then calls him to go lead the Lamanite mission. Do I have another chance to do it right? It's like, wow, he trusts me with revelation, even after I just proved that, <laughs> that I blew it. Well, same thing here. These early converts, these new members of the church there in Kirtland that fell prey to all of this falsehood and deception and hypocrisy and everything else. It's okay. I'm merciful to you. The kingdom is yours. I'll give you power to overcome all things. You're listening to me. The fact you even asked the question is a sign that you are open to correction. And that humility always leads to mercy on my part. Your sins are forgiven you. So what do you do now? You go try again. In fact, I love in verse 37, one of the people who's given a chance to try again. 37, let my servant Joseph Wakefield, in whom I am well pleased, and my servant Parley P. Pratt, Go forth among the churches and strengthen them by the word of exhortation. Now, where did we just leave Parley P. Pratt? Coming back to Kirtland with his tail between his legs after being shown the door, after he was a little overzealous and, and oh, undiplomatic with the Shakers in North Union. I wonder here if the Lord's saying, you know, Parley, I, I love you. I'm grateful for your zeal. Maybe we should have you teaching church members that already have a certain level of, of commitment and testimony already. And then you can just fire them up. How's that? Uh, why don't you go and strengthen the church by way of exhortation? And Parley's ready to rock. Okay? He's a, he becomes a great missionary to, to non-members as well. But here it's like, Parley, love what you're doing. Let's rein you in a little bit. Go bridle all your passions. Go be filled with love and go, go on this little mission to, to church members. Okay. Verse 38, also my servant John Coral, or as many of my servants as were ordained unto this office. So expand it beyond just the names that are listed here. Let them labor in the vineyard and let no man hinder them doing that which I have appointed unto them. Don't let anybody get in their way. Now, verse 39 suggests that Edward Partridge had, and I don't know exactly how he did. He's the bishop, charge of temporal affairs and, and kind of farming out uh, stewardships there in Kirtland. So I don't know if he's, 
I don't know, in some ways getting in the way of some of these mission calls. I, I, don't, I don't know the details historically here. But in 39, he's told, wherefore in this thing, my servant Edward Partridge is not justified. You haven't done it in my way. Nevertheless, he ends, let him repent and he shall be forgiven. Yeah, it's mercy for everybody. You're all making mistakes. That's okay. You're growing up in God. You're, you're learning. And I'm grateful for your attempts to, to improve. Verse 40, he, he summarizes that in such a beautiful way. Behold, ye are little children. And ye cannot bear all things now. Ye must grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. And I'm going to let you do that. I, I, I love the mercy that is throughout this chapter, even in some of the, the chastisement that the saints receive for having fallen prey to false and seducing spirits. You're little kids. You, you fell for it. You, you thought that was real when it was just a sleight of hand and cunning craftiness of man. I get it. And, and I'm okay. You're here to grow up in me. The light is growing brighter and brighter. So just receive light. Continue in God. Don't give up on this. I'm not giving up on you. He says it again in 41. Fear not, little children, for you are mine, and I have overcome the world, and you are of them that my Father hath given me. You're mine, if I'll be yours. So no fear. I overcame the world. So even if you fall prey to it, if, as long as you stay on my side, no matter how many lost battles, we will win the war. I know how this thing ends. Verse 42, none of them that my father hath given me shall be lost. And 43, the father and I are one. I am in the father and the father in me. And inasmuch as ye have received me, ye are in me and I in you. You sense this oneness that he's after? Father and son, one Son and disciples, one. All of disciples together, one with one another. Even Jesus wants to have this mutual understanding and mutual edification and mutual rejoicing together. Why? Because 44, that's just who he is. That is the character of Christ. I am in your midst. I am the good shepherd and the stone of Israel he that buildeth upon this rock shall never fall. The good shepherd, even to wandering sheep. Yeah, he'll go after the one. Leave the ninety and nine. The stone of Israel. Yeah, the sure foundation whereupon if men will build, they cannot fall. A rock as wide as eternity, Enoch saw in vision. So far that you can never fall off the edge. There isn't one. He is underneath you all, no matter how low you've gone. It's the reason I've come to love the word hitting rock bottom. Because when someone hits that low, rock bottom, they're finally back in contact with the rock that has always been beneath them, bearing them up. That rock, if you'll build, edify, on that. You'll never fall. And then he ends the revelation. The day cometh that you shall hear my voice and see me and know that I am. In fact, it's not just that the day is coming. The day is already here. Have you heard my voice in this revelation? Have you seen my merciful hand reaching out to you 
Do you know that I am? And do you know what I am? And what I'm trying to make you into? If you'll simply come. So 46, watch therefore, that ye may be ready, even so, amen. That is what the Lord is after from the very beginning. It's his work and his glory. He wants us to watch. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to hear his voice. He wants us to see him. He wants us to know him. And so he reaches out to us in his way, through the still small voice, the power of his word and of his spirit. I pray that every time we open his word and study it together, I hope that I'm doing it in his way. I'm trying. I pray that you receive these lessons in the spirit that I intend to give them so that we together, you and I, not just as me, teacher, and you, receiver, but as us, fellow receivers, can gain what God is trying to offer to each of us. Then it's not just horizontal, but a vertical understanding of one another and a mutual edification of the entire body of Christ as we rejoice together with each other, yes, but more importantly, with him. Brighter and brighter unto the perfect day, he is the light of the world. And may his day come quickly.